Ladies and gentlemen, good morning to you all. I'm Carl Andrix Svanberg. I'm the chairman. And on behalf of the board, I welcome you all to the 2012 annual general meeting for BP. Before we start our discussions, I formally propose the resolutions as set out in the notice of the meeting. We will vote on the poll on these resolutions at the end of the meeting. 2011 was a challenging year, but also showing important progress for BP. It was a year when we relayed the foundations for the company. Let me highlight the critical points. How we are making BP a stronger and safer company. The changes that we have made to the board and the road ahead for BP, our company, and what this means for you, our shareholders, and value creation over time. Let us go back 12 months. We met together in this room after a troubled year, a year that had seen the tragic accident and the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. In response, we, together with management, we in the board, we set three priorities. Safety and risk to be enhanced and embedded. Trust to be regained. Value creation to be achieved through the execu execution of a clear strategic plan. Bob on my left here, Bob Dudley, our CEO, in a few minutes he will give you more, talk more about this in a few minutes, but I want to be clear that turning each of these priorities into actions continues to require tremendous energy and commitment by everybody in this company. Let me first describe the strategic approach that the board has had for this work. For many years, BP operated as a largely decentralized organization. Different business units often had their local way of working. We're now building a company where we can leverage our global strength. A company that is more efficient and focused. A company that is designed to meet the tough challenges, but also the great opportunities ahead. And a company that is designed, and a company that can deliver value. So, we are stepping away from a system that is a legacy of our past and the acquisitions that we have made along the way. BP's new, more centralized organization enables us to better align the company around a set of clear and consistent standards. These are the documents that decide and define our way of working. To unite us around a common set of value, align our approach to risk that can encourage the sharing and knowledge and capability, the, the sharing of knowledge and capability, and all within one system of remuneration. From all my experience from leading global companies in global in challenging circumstances, this 
represents fundamental change. I witnessed myself significant progress when I visited our US operation, including Alaska last year, Azerbaijan, uh, our oil sands projects in Canada, and some places in Asia. During the year, the board supported and challenged Bob and his team as they worked to enhance BP's culture, systems, and processes. The board also initiated a review on the way that the company manages, reports, and acts on risk. And we enhanced and we grew the safety and operational risk function. And to be clear, safety and value goes hand in hand. It is about each employee having clear and defined, well-defined tasks and responsibilities, training and tools, as well as the support and the ways to access expertise in critical situations. It is about getting it right the first time. Therefore, there is no conflict between safety and value creation. So, let me then talk about trust. In an industry that makes vital contribution to everyday life, BP can only be successful if we have the trust of the people and the societies where we operate. And you all know that you cannot win the trust of people simply by saying, trust me. You earn the trust through your actions, through what you do. Therefore, during the year, we work closely with governments, with regulators, with our industry, demonstrating the enhancements that we are doing, we are making to risk management, and sharing the lessons of what we have learned. In the US, we continue to meet our commitments to those that have been affected by the spill, and we reached an important settlements with several parties involved. So by working and making priorities of safety and trust, we reinforce the foundations of a strong BP, a BP that can deliver sustainable value. In the past, we measured our success by barrels of hydrocarbons produced. We now measure success on the value that we generate for you, our shareholders. And we have therefore taken a hard look at our portfolio, disposing what has a higher value to others and thereby releasing value earlier in the life of our assets. We're playing to our strengths. BP has always been one of the great explorers, and we are now doubling the investments in exploration. And it is a sign of confidence in our abilities that we last year we were awarded 300,000 square kilometers of new acreage for exploration. That is a record in BP's history. It's unprecedented in recent decades. But value must, of course, value creation must, of course, also be reflected in the dividend. We re uh, restored the dividend in 2011, and recently we increased it by 14%.
These are important steps, but they are only the beginning of a journey. The company continually looks for new ways of forming partnerships and relationships around the world. Russia is particularly important to BP. Since its formation in 2003, TNK BP has paid $19 billion of dividends to BP. Last year alone, $3.7 billion. And the assets, our share of the assets, are now worth more than $25 billion. All of this from an investment of only $8 billion 11 years ago, nine years ago. This is what I call a good investment. We are fully committed to Russia, but there, as elsewhere, the nature of our industry is rarely straightforward. However, we, this will not hold us back. BP did not become one of the greatest companies in the world by being timid. Let me now turn to the changes we made to the board. We have sought skills and experience that is relevant to our strategy and to the challenges that we will face in the future. After this AGM, eight of the 11 non-executive directors will have served less than three years on the board. This represents a substantial refreshment. Andrew Shilston just joined us, uh, and as did Professor uh, Dame Anne Dowling. Uh, Andrew was the finance director at Rolls-Royce. But equally important, he is an oil man with many years of experience from Enterprise Oil and Can Energy. Anne heads up the engineering department at Cambridge, one of the finest engineering academies in the world. And she brings exceptional academic and engineering expertise. Brian Gilvari took over as our CFO. Brian has over 20 years experience from BP. Byron Groth, our previous CFO, he stays on with us as a director responsible for corporate business activities. After nearly six years on the board, Bill Castell has decided not to seek re-election. Bill has made a substantial contribution to the board, not least as a chair for the Safety, Ethics and Environment Assurance Committee. He's unable to join us here today, but I speak for the entire board when I thank him for all that he has done. Bill's role as an independent director, senior independent director, will be taken over by Andrew Chilston, who I said just joined. He will be supported in this role by Anthony Bergman, our longest serving board member. Paul Anderson, during the year Anthony Bergman took over the chair for the remuneration committee, and Brendan Nelson took over the chair of the audit committee. Paul Anderson has taken over the chair for the SEAC committee. Meanwhile, Ian Davis has continued as the chair for the Gulf of Mexico committee, which has been invaluable 
in allowing the main board to manage its work during the restoration of the Gulf of Mexico and the, and the litigation. We have been through tough times, but I can tell you that the enthusiasm and the commitment from this board to the success of the company is total, as is mine. I want to thank all the directors for their efforts and advice. I want to thank Bob Dudley and the team for all that you have done during the year. And I would like to thank our employees for their commitment to make BP a stronger and safer company. Thank you. Very kind. Um, so what lies ahead? for our company. BP's energy outlook 2030 points at a 40% increased energy demand for energy over the next 20 years. In mature economies, energy consumption is expected to be largely flat despite continued growth in economy because of ongoing energy efficiency activities and the CO2 emissions have already peaked. But in the world's emerging markets, billions of people are striving to reach the same standard of living as we enjoy today. And that is driving economic growth and it is driving energy demand. The encouraging development of new forms of energy continues. It's the fastest growing form of energy, but from a very low base. And hydrocarbons will still dominate over the next several decades with an over 80% market share of energy produced. It is therefore important to recognize the essential role that hydrocarbons will continue to play in fueling progress around the world. In this world of great opportunity, it is our determination to significantly enhance the value of BP by actively managing our portfolio, by expanding our exploration activities, and by working with our partners to explore for oil in increasingly difficult areas. You will see BP tackle the very tough technical and physical challenges involved in meeting the world's energy needs. You will see BP live up to its commitments to local communities and to society. And finally, you will see BP re repay the loyalty shown by you, our shareholders, by creating material rewards. In all of this, I can assure you that we as a board will commit all our expertise and energy to realization of these objectives. BP is a great company with a great history and I'm convinced of a great future. As your chairman, I'm determined to lead a BP that can succeed in meeting the opportunities ahead. So I would like to end by thanking you for the support that you are showing. And I thank you for coming here and being here with us today. So with that, let us move to the more formal business of the meeting.
So, thank you for continuing to coming here to Excel. And giving you the numbers that are here, this remains the best venue for us suited to the needs we have. I am keen to ensure that all of you who wish to have the opportunity to have the say on today's agenda. Our shareholder base is broad, with the majority of our shares being held outside the United Kingdom. And for this reason, all our voting is by way of a poll. This, of course, should not at all hold back the debate and discussion in the meeting today. With your support and assistance, I believe that we can move through the resolutions efficiently. The notice of the meeting contains the text of each resolution. There are supporting notes which give further clarification and background. Information on all of the directors who are offering themselves for re-election and election are here. A full description on how the meeting is to be conducted you can find on page 18 in the notice of the meeting as you also can read about the poll procedure. As we go through the meeting, you will see behind me slides with the number and title of each of the resolutions that we are discussing. The resolution 19, 21, and 22 are proposed as special resolutions. A special resolution needs to be passed by three quarters majority of those voting in the poll. All other resolutions are ordinary resolutions which require a 50%, which require a 50% or simple majority. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's now discuss resolution number one, the annual report and accounts, uh, which you find in our report, which is our report of in BP in 2011. I have already made my comments. Bob Dudley, our CEO, will now give his own thoughts. We will then have questions. Please, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, Carl Henrik, and thank you for your leadership and support over the last year. Our non-executive directors have a wide range of experience, not only in energy, but areas such as safety, engineering, and finance. And as a management team, we greatly appreciate their scrutiny and expertise. I also want to thank and add a personal welcome to all of you and to say thank you for sticking with BP through the past couple of years. It has been a challenging period. We've continued to apply the lessons from the Deepwater Horizon accident, and we've continued to make BP fit for the future, strong enough to grasp the new opportunities we face and wise enough to manage the risks that brings with them. As Carl Henrik has said, BP continues to learn the lessons of 2010 and continues to make changes to enhance our systems and processes and our ability to operate safely and effectively. Let's look at the company that we are today. All our BP operations, with the exception of those recently acquired, apply a single operating standard. Our upstream has undergone the biggest change in 20 years by moving from a series of local businesses to global teams that apply global standards, whether that's in Aberdeen, Angola, or Azerbaijan. We put in place new checks and balances, 
largely through a new team of safety experts who work alongside our business leaders, and they can intervene if necessary. We've reviewed the company's performance and reward system. We reward safety and teamwork alongside financial and operating outcomes. And we launched a new set of values and a refreshed code of conduct. We are a smaller company today, but we're also a stronger one. And we continue to invest boldly in what we do best. At the same time, we are divesting assets that are less strategic or competitive. When I spoke to you last year, those changes were just beginning. Today, they've mostly been made. Then we were largely focused on stabilizing the ship. Today, we've set a course, and we're moving forward with increasing speed. We've made progress by focusing on three simple priorities, striving for continuous improvement in safety and risk management, second, earning back trust, and third, growing value for our shareholders by playing to BP's strengths. Today, I'm going to divide my remarks into two sections. First, looking back on how we drove those priorities of safety, trust, and value in 2011, and then looking ahead to the way we plan to further drive them in the next three years. And as I'm looking forward, I have to show you this cautionary legal statement that essentially points out what you already know is the future is always uncertain. Now, looking back in 2011, much of our focus was on laying the foundations for a stronger and a safer BP. A major structural change was the establishment of a new corporate safety team, our Safety and Operational Risk Management Organization. We call it SNOR and BP. The leader of SNOR reports directly to me, and the organization has two clear roles. First, it has a central team of experts who design and maintain the group standards. These standards are kept under review, and they are updated often in light of information from the field, and progress in technology. Secondly, SNOR has hundreds of deployed staff who work alongside the people who manage and run our operations in rigs and refineries and other plants. They're not part of the line business management. They're independent and their remit is to provide advice and also challenge. They need to approve appointments of safety critical staff, for example. And if they believe that an operation needs to stop, then it stops. And last year, there was continued progress. We had fewer days away from work injuries. We had fewer recordable injuries, fewer losses of primary containment, such as spills and leaks. But we are anything but complacent. Safety is a never-ending journey of learning, improvement, and it will always be good business. Last year, we restructured our upstream business into three global divisions of exploration, developments, and projects, production. This allows us to establish and propagate our standards globally, more simply, so that, for example, we have a standardized BP drilling and wells operation globally. This organization change was the biggest change in the upstream business in a very long time. Also in 2011, we carried out a very large number of turnarounds, which is where you take an asset out of service for a major maintenance overhaul. We carried out 47 turnarounds in the upstream in 2011, which was an unprecedented number for us. Let me move on to the subject of trust. 
I believe that trust comes from doing what you say you're going to do, and this is how we've sought to act in the Gulf of Mexico. From the very beginning, we stepped up to our commitments to the communities in the region, and we've worked hard to deliver on those commitments now for nearly two years. Our guiding principle was not to do the minimum, as required by law, but to do the right thing. We've continued to devote people and resources to that area, and we are seeing recovery. The beaches are open, and 2011 was a great year for tourism. And independent studies have shown that the Gulf seafood is safe. In February, we achieved an important milestone in the legal proceedings when we reached a proposed settlement with the Plaintiff's Steering Committee, which represented thousands of people who have brought claims from the Gulf Coast region. BP has estimated that that proposed agreement will cost around $7.8 billion and will resolve the substantial majority of legitimate economic loss and medical claims. Aside from that, BP has spent more than $22 billion towards meeting its commitments in the Gulf, including more than $8 billion already paid to individuals, businesses, and government entities, as well as around $14 billion spent on the operational response. Another way in which we build trust is to be consistent all over the world. So last year, the management team spent a lot of time discussing the values we wanted BP to exhibit every day. Rather than coming up with textbook examples, we came up with five simple personal qualities that we believe the company stands for. And they're safety, respect, excellence, courage, and acting as one team. These are more than just words. They are how we work. The values are built into our performance management system and our reward systems. As of last year, BP's people are now paid not only on their contributions to business results, it's obviously important, but on their contributions to safety and risk management and behaviors that exhibit our values. Turning from personal and corporate values to shareholder value, 2011 was a solid year, both in terms of in-year performance and in positioning BP for the years ahead. We had an outstanding year for access to new acreage. As the chairman said, we were awarded 55 licenses in 2011 alone, making a total of 84 licenses in 12 countries since October 2010. We also saw good progress in our operations and the large number of turnarounds and temporary cessation in the Gulf of Mexico activity did affect our production. But in October, as in many of our operations, came back on stream, and production started to rise again and increased by 5%, or 170,000 barrels per day, between the third and the fourth quarters. Also in October, we received our first permit since 2010 to drill a new well in the Gulf of Mexico where we now have five big rigs up and running. In the downstream, performance kept improving, and the business ended the year with a record underlying pre-tax profit of $6 billion. And in the alternative energy business, we focused our activity on biofuels and wind, the two areas where we believe we can build substantial businesses. And we invested for growth, acquiring new ethanol businesses in Brazil, 
and taking the total number of wind turbines in the U.S. to over 1,000. Our headline profit for the full year was $23.9 billion, and that compares to a loss of $4.9 billion in 2010. This enabled us to increase the dividend by 14%, as the chairman has said, and that's the first rise since we resumed paying a dividend a year ago. <laughs> Must be a plane. <laughs> so I'll speak up. So now let's look ahead to the rest of 2012 and the years beyond that. Once again, I'll look at it through the lenses of safety, trust, and value. In safety and risk management, as I mentioned, we have renewed our foundations that are focusing on three big principles to drive continuous improvement. First is strong safety leadership. With leaders now in the company spending more and more time in the field and maintaining a culture of great sensitivity to risk. The second is to ensure we use our operating management system to its full potential, and we use it to continue to drive safe operations and continuous improvement everywhere. And third is a principle of checks and balances. Inspections, audits, checks by line managers, by SNOR, and even by external accessors. Admiral Bowman, who's on our board, reminds us of a famous statement by Admiral Rickover, he said, you get what you inspect, not what you expect. It's one of our principles of driving our actions. And in terms of trust, we will continue to meet our commitments to the Gulf of Mexico region, and we continue to fund restoration and research projects across the Gulf. Our business in the U.S. is important, where we have 23,000 employees. We will also... It's getting louder. Must be the uh, Docklands Light Railway back there. We will also continue to play an active part in society everywhere we work. So here in Britain, for example, we employ more than 15,000 people. And we've increased our graduate recruits by 50% this year in the UK. And our commitment remains strong to the North Sea. And we're now planning to invest a further 10 billion pounds with our partners over the next five years, and this should provide 3,000 more jobs. And we also help build skills for future generations, and our Schools Link program has linked four BP employees to local schools now for more than 40 years, and we've got strong partnerships with the leading universities in Britain and around the world. This year, of course, we are making a particular contribution to the UK as the official oil and gas partner for the London Olympics and the Paralympic Games. We will provide advanced fuels and engine oils for the over 5,000 official vehicles. We will help all ticketed spectators offset their carbon footprints as they travel to the Games. So let's turn from sporting competition to business competition. How is BP going to compete in the years to come? You may have seen we've laid out a very straightforward 10-point plan to grow value in the BP. The plan includes five things that you can expect from BP and five things you can measure. I'm going to take you through them briefly. The first point, as you would expect, is that we will continue to have a relentless focus on safety and risk management. 
you can expect that. The second point is, as Carl Hendricks said, we will play to our strengths. BP is what is known as a super major, a global energy company with operations all along the energy supply chain. But each stage of the chain is becoming more complex, and we need to focus on BP's distinctive strengths. And we're investing in those strengths in those parts of the value chain. And that chain starts with exploration. We're, we're good at finding oil and gas. And we also have strengths in managing deep water operations, giant fields, and gas value chains. We have a world-class downstream business, and we have some industry-leading technologies. And we have strong relationships around the world. And we would not have lasted over a century without those. We're now investing in, the strengths, in those strengths, and we are divesting other areas. For example, we are investing in exploration but divesting mature oil and gas fields that other companies can specialize in. Those areas include the Southern North Sea and some fields in the Gulf of Mexico. We're investing in refineries that are well-positioned and well-configured, such as the Whiting Refinery in the Midwest of the U.S., but we are divesting those refineries that are less well-positioned or configured. The principle is to prioritize value over volume and quality over quantity. We're exploring in four main deepwater areas, the Gulf of Mexico, the North Sea, North Africa, the South Atlantic, Southeast Asia, and Australasia. It's actually more than four. We have gas value chains around the world, shipping gas from Trinidad to Europe and from Indonesia to China, and most recently from the Indonesian Ocean to customers in India with our repartners in Reliance Industries. Giant fields under BP's operation include one called, we have colorful names in the oil and gas industry, includes the Mad Dog Field in the Gulf of Mexico, the Clare Field in the North Sea, Rumela, which is Iraq's biggest field, Tangu in Indonesia, and Shah Deniz in the Caspian Sea. These are some of the largest fields in the world. We're investing for quality in our downstream businesses, for example, in that major upgrade of the Whiting Refinery in the U.S. Technology is being used in support of safety and value creation. One current example is the system of wireless corrosion monitors that's being deployed in our refineries to monitor pipes and valves. Moving back to the 10-point plan, point three is that we will be stronger and more focused. And this comes about largely through the strengthening and focusing of our portfolio. Point four is that we will be simpler and more standardized. And that's what you're seeing with the new SNOR organization and the new upstream structure to drive standards throughout BP. We've also promised to give shareholders more visibility of the value of our business, and we are delivering on that promise. So, for example, in our four-year results, we reported separate figures for three parts of our business in the downstream. So we've separated out the value coming from fuels, from lubricants, and chemicals. And we have now separated out for you to see the results more clearly of TNKBP in Russia. Turning to what you can measure, we have pledged that active portfolio management will continue. And in 2012, we will continue to strengthen the portfolio. And we'll do that through a series of divestments, which will total, we believe, 
$38 billion through the end of this year from beginning in 2010. The expected total of announcements divestments today stands at around $23 billion. Point seven is that we plan to bring on stream new upstream projects with unit, higher unit cash margins. In fact, we expect to see 15 new projects coming on stream in the next three years with margins that are around double the existing average of our portfolio, if we assume a $100 barrel uh, contribution. Having a stronger portfolio with higher margins means we will create more cash. And our goal is to generate 50% more operating cash by 2014, working on assumptions again of $100 a barrel. The full details of these assumptions and calculations are in the annual report of accounts. Point nine of the plan relates to how we use that cash. So the plan is to reinvest half of that in the portfolio of assets that we have so it gets stronger all the time and to use the other half for other purposes, such as distributions to our shareholders or paying down debt. All of that requires financial discipline and a strong balance sheet. And we aim to keep the gearing level of the company in the lower half of the 10 to 20% range. So that's the 10-point plan in summary. But what can you expect to see year by year? This is what we showed to investors when we presented our results in February. You can expect 2012 to be a year of milestones as we invest around $22 billion in good projects. We plan to start up six new projects this year, and we plan to have eight big rigs running on BP-operated fields or exploration work in the Gulf of Mexico. We plan to deliver $2 billion in underlying downstream performance improvement compared to 2009, and we also expect to complete our payments into the Gulf of Mexico Trust Fund this year. Then, in 2013 and 2014, as investment continues, you should expect to see greater financial momentum coming through in our operations. A further nine new projects are planned to start up with strong cash margins in 13 and 14. The upgrade at the Whiting Refinery is planned to come on stream in 2013 and the divestments are expected to reach that $38 billion number that I mentioned. All of this means that by 2014, we can expect to see that approximate 50% increase in operating cash flow over 2011. I think this is just the beginning of the next chapter in BP's history, and that chapter will bring its own opportunities and challenges. Our analysts set out in our energy outlook to 2030, and I think this is an amazing slide. It says a lot about our industry. says a lot about where the future is going in the world. It says that energy demand in all forms is set to increase by up to 40% by 2030. It's mainly driven by growth in the emerging economies. The world is going to need new sources of energy supply in all forms, and that is why BP is investing across the spectrum of energy types from Brazilian ethanol to natural gas in Indonesia to Canadian heavy oil. The energy of the future will be a mix of hydrocarbons and alternatives. 
It's a mix that constantly evolves as we make this long wavelength transition to a lower carbon economy. And we are acting to make BP fit for that future. For example, we advocate carbon pricing and we assure that our projects can be competitive in a world where carbon is priced by factoring in the cost of carbon when we look at a business case. So I hope that you leave here today clearly appreciating how BP has changed. We've come through a major crisis and the company has been tested to the limit. We have a very clear plan for our future and yours as shareholders. Time prevents me from going into more detail, but I do encourage you to pick up the information you'll be offered as you leave. Uh, read the articles and reports on what BP is doing around the world. It's all about safety, trust, and value. In terms of safety, we put in place new structures, standards, expertise. In terms of trust, we are meeting our commitments in the U.S., and we're attaining the confidence of governments, customers, and investors around the world. In terms of value, we are on course to build our business and reward our shareholders by playing to our strengths. I do want to record my thanks to BP's people, without whom this progress would not have been possible. And as I said at the start, we are deeply grateful to all of you for supporting BP. Without your support, we would not be here today. But thanks to your support, we plan to be here tomorrow and for many years to come. And thank you very much. So, thanks, Bob. Once again, thank you and your team for all that you've done over the past year. So, ladies and gentlemen, I would now like to take questions on the annual report and accounts on the business and, the group, and on the group generally. Before I do, let me explain the arrangements for asking questions. We have four question points, A, B, C, and D, um, that you can all find. Uh, only shareholders, proxies, or corporate uh, representatives may ask questions. To do so, you obviously go to one of the question points. Uh, please give your name to the attendant at the question point. When I ask you to speak, please begin with your name and your status. As regular at attendees know, many people wish to ask questions. Please make sure that your question relates to an item of the business under consideration, under discussion. For example, could we please make sure that questions on remuneration are asked under resolution number two and not on this first resolution report and accounts? Also, I'm asking you to, make, to ask a question, not to make speeches. And this should ensure and help us to give everybody a chance to ask questions uh, here today. We have a broad shareholder base. Many of them are unable to attend today, but, we are, but they're able to participate in the voting of the resolutions through the proxy. We will show the proxy votes uh, we have received on slides behind me after the discussion of each item of, the business, of our business. So that we also can have an orderly question, I would like to try and take several questions 
if, if we receive questions on topics where I think there are more, more than one that has a question. And I would like to ask the attendants at each station to help me try to organize that. Also, as in previous meetings, I will, uh, from time to time, I will ask my, my board colleagues to assist me here. And between us all, I'm, I'm confident that we can answer any questions you have. So, we are ready to start. So, could we go to, uh, let's start with number one at question point A. Well, hello. And uh, I've got a question to ask, to, uh, to put to Bob Dudley. John Benstead is my name, and I'm a shareholder, and also at one time, worked for BP for a good few years. Yes. So that's where I'm coming from. And what I'm concerned about are the spillages that you're getting at the moment in, in the North Sea. And uh, I've seen those. It's in the independent newspaper on the uh, 9th of this month that um, uh, BP had, had got the largest number of, of spillages is um, 23 out of 69. Now, that, those figures are slightly misleading, but what you've got in, in them is the fact that Total uh, and Shell ha have, in terms of volume, uh, not been as successful as BP. But it's nothing to gloat about at all. And you've got to have more... Uh, uh, re reliance on chemicals and, uh, and uh, other uh, the materials. As, and this is where BP has been very weak in recent years. Yeah, so uh, I don't intend to say very much, but leaks... And I think it's very poignant that what you've got at Total, they haven't uh, been able to kill this latest problem that they have. So the question is quite simply, uh, can you uh, make sure that you get all these uh, leaks stopped? because if you don't, you're going to be pilloried in the press. So, Thanks a lot, John, so, for, for the question. Yeah. It's very clear about spill in the North Sea and the number of spills we have of the 69. So I'll hand over to uh, Bob to uh, ask, answer that. John, thank you very much. Um, as the largest operator in the UK, we, we are uh, diligent about reporting leaks, even if it's, uh, it really drops. So that's part of the policy we do in terms of reporting the leaks. Um, that is part of the, uh, what we've done in the last year with the turnarounds of our upstream assets and taking them down to make sure that we tighten every bolt and make sure that, uh, that leaks uh, are absolutely minimized in the North Sea. You can, sure, you can be sure it's a huge area of focus for us. Uh, regarding your question uh, about uh, or your comment about Total. Total is a good company. They're having an incident in the North Sea. I'm sure they will be able to possibly, through a top kill or, or drill a relief well. For those of you who don't know, there's a gas leak in the North Sea. 
and we are offering them assistance based on the experience that we had in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, but John, thank you for your comment. Uh, rest assured, uh, any cause of, we call it loss of primary containment, which is a leak of the smallest form, including just drops coming out of a valve, and we track it now and report it monthly and discuss it as a senior management team to minimize that. You'll hear more about it. I think rather than call them leaks, loss of primary containment would be how you would see that in our annual reports. Yes. I understand that we have, are you fine with that answer, John? Yes, uh, yeah. yes I'm, I'm fine, with that, fine with that answer, but you, you've got to be careful not to take uh, people for granted in these areas because you haven't got enough uh, chemists at all. Tony Haywood, when he was uh, as the uh, chief executive, actually pinpointed this, but nothing has happened in that area. You, you need to be in the technical forefront and, and not be the, uh, in, in a situation where... You, you think you're doing everything okay, and you're leaving huge areas out where you need them. That's okay. straight into the focus of our work, so we thank you for your thoughts. I think we have a few more questions on the North Sea and, and the spill. Uh, should we start with B there? And, and now we aggregate questions on the North Sea. Please, B. My name is uh, Krishnamurti. I'm a shareholder. My question is to Mr. Bob Dudley. Thank you very much for your uh, annual report uh, and the details that you have presented. My question concerns the litigations connected with the Gulf of Mexico oil spill, which is causing greatest worry to shareholders and a potential threat to the volatility of BP's share price. You have described this severe was the several litigations and some of the settlements in your report on pages 76 to 79. And I would be grateful. I think the report is a bit very complicated for shareholders like me to understand what is the ultimate uh, aim of these litigations or where we are going to end and what is the potential claims, which, of course, you have said in several places that it's unable to quantify how it is going to end. I would be grateful if you could uh, please explain in simple terms the remaining litigations and the potential impact on the company's current resources allocation, whether you consider that, the, that sufficient provisions has been made to cover the risk. And the other related question is, when do you think you hope to start drilling again in the Macondo well? Thank you. This is a question regarding the Gulf, and we will take, I'm sure, several questions on the Gulf in just a minute. We will not forget your question. I just want to finish up the North Sea first. I think there were some more questions on the North Sea. Is that correct? Anybody else on the North Sea? If not, let us then take the Gulf. And then I, I suggest before you answer that any other questions on the Gulf, let's take them at the same time. We have a question at Station D. Station D, and then we have Station B. Please. I'm sorry. 
Please, John Farmer, uh, Chairman, Shareholder. On the Gulf of Mexico, please would you comment specifically on not so much the recent claim settlement with predominantly private claimants, but the risk of a public sector United States claim for the likes of negligence, uh, which could materially affect the company's fortunes. Uh, for example, Department of Justice, possible state, uh, United States state uh, authorities, the, the public sector claims, which are still outstanding and uh, which surely represent a major risk. Please, would you quantify those and comment on likely outcome? Thank you. Right. And we'll continue. B. Um, hello. My name is Adrian Manke. I'm a shareholder. And um, I also have a question on the Gulf of Mexico. I'm a bit uneasy when reading the report that this might be the last AGM of BP. The reason that brought me to this thought is we all know that you can always fight a court verdict, but you can never fight a prejudice. If you look at the Gulf of Mexico, BP pays hundreds and hundreds of millions for tourism, for seafood marketing, fish and wildlife, recreation, unemployed oil workers, currently $40 billion total, all without a court verdict. At the same time, Halliburton and Transocean walk off unharmed. BP is also almost banned from drilling or getting new drilling licenses in the US. So my question is, since it is a prejudice which BP can't fight against, which are the individual third parties or organizations you are going to contract so that those who cause the spill are put to justice? Could you also add that to your 10-point strategy? Because currently it's completely internal. We'll take one more and then we'll answer from A. My name is Patrick Streeter and I'm a shareholder. Would you, sir, not agree that it is rather hypocritical of the United States to complain about the disastrous pollution in the Gulf of Mexico, while at the same time being responsible for the defoliation in Vietnam, the deforestation in West Africa, and also their cavalier attitude, the pumping of CO2 gases into the atmosphere? All right. Uh, let me first start with Mr. Farmer. I didn't get, I think your first name was John, if I'm right. Um, the, uh, when it comes to the uh, Department of Justice, there are two big legal questions for us. One is the private, all those that are affected, private uh, people, businesses. Um, those are the ones where we are in the process of settling, hopefully within a few days. Uh, the other one is Department of Justice, which is the public. That is uh, an ongoing negotiations, and there is no way we can, we can comment on that. But it's, of course, a very important, uh, important uh, negotiation. And as we've said several times, we are, we are willing to settle if that is on reasonable terms or we'll have to test the case in court. So I don't think we can say much more on that. Um, to Patrick... Uh, let me just say that, uh, of course, the deforestation is not a matter for BP. We can have, all have private opinions. What we can conclude is, is, 
uh, what, what America is, is doing and, and in, re relating to this spill, or what we are doing in America is we are acting according to law. And, and all of what we are, uh, all of what, what we are paying in claims uh, to the individuals are all according to the, the Oil Pollution Act. And it's, the, and, and it's, uh, it is, um, uh, it's all handled in court or, or overseen by court. And the same thing is with the Department of Justice. So, um, and I think we can uh, so far say that we have not been treated in any different way than anybody else when it comes to new licenses. But I leave it over, give it to you, Bob, and, and talk more about that, including comments on the provisions. That was the first question. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman. Um, Krishna, you, you raised the question about two things, about the provisions and also a simple explanation of the legal process. I think I have to give you a simple answer and say it's not simple, uh, but, that, um, but that right now our provisions that we have are our best, uh, our best view of the provisions that we've set aside to meet our commitments and obligations in the U.S., including the legal processes, um, and that and they are described in some detail in those pages 74 that you mentioned. On drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, I'm pleased to report that we have received permits and are drilling our uh, first uh, appraisal well now. We are using rigs to recomplete wells. Uh, so we are fully back to work in the Gulf of Mexico and our teams are fully uh, employed, working on positive projects and have three more rigs planned to come into the Gulf where we will be the largest, we are the largest producer in the Gulf, and we will be the largest um, operator in the Gulf. So I, I think it's fair to say that, um, to Adrian's point, that we have not seen that we have been treated differently. We have approached all of our activities in the Gulf of Mexico with incredible diligence working side by side with the regulators on each one of those permits. And the team in uh, BP has done an admirable job working with the regulator to get back to work in the U.S., um, regarding uh, Adrian, your point on Transocean and Halliburton, um, they, we have shouldered the burden almost entirely of the events in the Gulf of Mexico. We have good contributions from Mitsui in Japan and Anadarko. Halliburton, Transocean, we believe that they played a causal role in the accident and the events. Um, but we've moved on and we're meeting our obligations and those are decisions that they will have to make going forward. Um, I think that's all right. Could we go to station D? <clears throat> yes, hi. My name is Derek Christopher Evans, uh, and I am uh, have a proxy. And uh, I don't speak for the American government, but I am a citizen of the United States and a resident of the Gulf Coast. <clears throat> I live in Gulfport, Mississippi, which is midpoint between New Orleans, Louisiana, and Mobile, Alabama. Uh, I speak instead on behalf of scores of thousands of everyday people uh, with whom BP uh, uh, is committed to regaining trust um, by doing what it says it's going to do. Um, I should also add that I do represent the Gulf Coast Fund for Community Renewal and Ecological Health, um, which is a community-based regional philanthropy that has helped over 250 organizations across the Gulf Coast uh, deal with the adverse impacts uh, that have included uh, the outcomes, the environmental and social outcomes of the Macondo 
well blowout, the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Uh, and in both capacities, as just a private citizen and as a uh, representative of a philanthropic uh, community in the states trying to deal with these impacts, I must say that for the past two years, um, BP's uh, guidance and direction over the Gulf of Mexico Trust Fund, excuse me, Gulf of Mexico Trust Fund has left quite a bit to be desired. Um, I could, but won't, uh, spend much time uh, outlining for you and, and contrasting in vivid detail uh, the many ways in which the rosy picture that's been painted in the annual report and elsewhere and in the public relations campaign globally and nationally and regionally um, falls short of a true representation of what we're seeing on the ground in these communities. And so I would simply instead uh, remind shareholders and board members of the fact that it is not yet unlikely or uncertain that the value of BP shares might plummet, uh, particularly should uh, a hurricane or an unforeseen uh, event like that uh, exacerbate the flow of oil, which is currently, as I speak, uh, flowing onshore daily in various places. Um, and that's something to be considered. Uh, I think the, the emphasis on safety has not just to do with the industrial operations, but on ensuring that that oil has been cleaned up. And I'm here to tell you that it hasn't, uh, and that there are many, many others who know this, but who don't have the money or the means <clears throat> to promote that on television or on the Internet in the ways that your PR department has aggressively done. Finally, I would just simply ask if board members, the chairman, stake, uh, shareholders, or others would simply uh, welcome an invitation to come and see for yourself the Gulf Coast communities and ecosystems that I'm talking about, that the Gulf Coast Fund exists to help renew, uh, and which are indeed still reeling from the effects of the disaster. The Gulf Coast, Flame, Gulf Coast Claims Facility under Kenneth Feinberg <clears throat> has been a disaster for many. To date, not a single medical claim has been paid out. The, uh, <clears throat> the promise of all legitimate economic losses and uh, medical claims being compensated rings one way in the public sphere, but in reality, uh, on the ground, this is not the experience that most people would speak. Thank All you. All right. Thanks a lot. We have one more there on the same topic. Please. Good morning. Usually when folks ask my status, I have to tell them I am a legal U.S. citizen. Um, but, but today I'm just a proxy. Uh, thank you. I traveled uh, here from Houston, Texas, and last year I attempted to enter this meeting and was uh, not allowed in. I was barred along with a fisherman, um, I mean actually uh, an oysterman, Byron Oncolate from uh, Plaquemines Parish in Louisiana. Um, Tracy Coons with the Louisiana Biokeeper was also barred from entering. And her partner, Michael Roberts, who is a shrimper in Barataria Bay, 
um, was also barred. So thank you for allowing us uh, this year an opportunity to voice our concerns and express uh, um, some, some vital information for all of the shareholders and for yourself and for the board to consider um, because I think this affects everyone's investments here. Now that Derek has made quite a long speech. I, if you this will be very short, two yeah. minutes at Thank most. Um, so Tracy, Byron, and Robert represent a larger community of fishermen and families that have also been devastated and uncompensated by the BP drilling disaster. The fishing communities along the Gulf Coast have had an unprecedented year of plummeting fish stocks and all-time lows with no signs of recovery. In Barataria Bay, preliminary findings indicate that marine mammals are suffering from low body weight, anemia, low blood sugar, and symptoms of liver and lung disease. Scientists say the dolphins' ailments are similar to those found in other mammals exposed to oil. In deep-sea coral colonies, researchers are attributing signs of damage and stress to oil that was released during the BP drilling disaster. In Alabama and Mississippi, tar balls found months after the spill contain high levels of deadly bacteria. And more recently in Louisiana, two groups have recently obtained a manual from the Cleanups Vessel of Opportunity Program. And the manual contradicts public assertions made by BP that chemicals used to disperse the oil were safe. And as you all know, BP used an unprecedented amount of dispersant during the cleanup efforts. We now see an epidemic of health issues developing in the Gulf Coast states and many coastal residents, cleanup workers, and others exposed to the cleanup chemicals continue to exhibit poor health, and some have actually died. Many of these individuals have been unable to acquire proper medical attention. And my question to you, Mr. Chairman, um, the board, and yep. others, given that the safety of the dispersant has come into question, when will you disclose the complete chemical components of the dispersant and the real health risk associated to exposure to these chemicals? What will BP do to take full responsibility for the ecological health in the estuaries and coastal communities to regain that trust? All right. Thanks a lot for, for, the two, for your two questions. Let, let me first say that uh, I have been, as you understand, several times into the Gulf of Mexico. So has uh, the rest of the board. We continue to travel there. The Gulf of Mexico Committee has had 37 meetings. Every meeting starts with an update uh, about the whole situation. We, uh, the American legal system is very clear and quite far-reaching. Uh, we, uh, we could have um, uh, litigated every matter in court for a long time. We, uh, we met quickly with the American administration, the American president. We set up the $20 billion fund and we set up a speedy process to uh, compensate those that are affected. That has happened over the last uh, one and a half, two years. Uh, this process now, if we get to the agreement also now with the Plaintiff Steering Committee, in the next couple of days, this is taken over by, by their administration and it's overseen by, by court. We have, we've done everything we possibly can to make sure that we compensate everyone that has a legitimate claim. Um, in addition to that, there is a natural resource damage assessment process where we are involved, uh, where we work alongside with state and federal NRD trustees. This is going on since May 2010. Uh, and all of this is to understand the impact of the spill in the Gulf of Mexico and all its aspects, be it water or shoreline or seabed or marine and bird life. 
although that hasn't yet been concluded, we early have agreed to um, committed one billion to early restoration projects. In addition to that, we have also donated half a billion dollars for independent research on the long-term effects on the marine life. Uh, money that is overseen by an independent uh, advisory board. Um, so I believe we are doing everything we possibly can. And everything that we, uh, that we are doing is according to American law. And, and I think it's hard to, to do much more as, as a company. But anyway, I thank you for your input, and you can rest assured that we are equally interested as you to understand all the long-term effects. I would now like to uh, go to an old friend, Captain Hawker. It's good to see you here again. Thank you, sir. Ordinary shareholder. When BP acquired Amoco, I warned of America's attitude to safety quoting the Amoco Cardis as then the biggest maritime oil disaster. And my experience of working for American companies and their regard for safety was keep your mouth shut or get sacked. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the press, may I suggest you resist this temptation to systematically knock successful British companies and look seriously at the exact details of disasters such as we have experienced and how much of that was the responsibility of British people and how much of other nationalities. And incidentally, you might remember that BP was vital in the supply of oil, enabling Britain to resist the Nazi terrorism. And now there's the imminent celebration of the centenary of the British Tanker Company. May I suggest you give that a bit of publicity? And Board, may I suggest you celebrate the centenary of the efforts of the British Tanker Company. Coming back, sir, I, I appreciate diversion. <laughs> what steps are we now taking to ensure it is British standards of safety that are being maintained? Well, thanks for that question. I'll hand this over. This is a, a favorite topic for, for Bob because this is so close to our hearts in our safety work. Yeah, well, thank you, Captain. Thank you for your, your number of your comments there. Both uh, BP is a very successful British company. It's a great British company. Um, I would say BP is also a, a great global company. And so the standards that we put in place are global. Uh, I think they're the best of British standards, but they're also global. Uh, we, with the organization that we have put in place, uh, safety is an incredible area of focus for us every day. It's not only safety, it's managing risks and anticipating safety issues. So I can tell you we are a global company. We have 80,000 people around the world. Um, 
We have people of all nationalities everywhere, and regardless of those nationalities, uh, safety and risk management is the number one thing on their agenda, as you would expect after 2010. I'll, I'll, uh, we'll take your point about celebrating the centenary of the British tanker company. And uh, Byron Grote, who heads up our shipping organization as well as alternative energies in other areas, Byron will have to think about what we should do with that. That's good. Let, let me just add one comment about your standards, because I think this is important. If we look at BP's history, what I said in my introduction here about being decentralized, some companies in our industry were basically born around a set of assets of, of, of oil exploration opportunities and therefore became naturally quite centralized and they had, their, they had their common way of working. Our history is much more to be elsewhere in the world. North Sea was discovered late in our history. So we, we worked in Egypt, we went to Persia, we went to Nigeria, we went to different countries. And, and obviously in those days had our local way of working. When we then add to that acquisitions that had their way of working, this is why we had more of a decentralized way. Now that the, Bob has led the reorganization of the company, where he has one man, Bernard Looney, who does all the development of, of, uh, of finding oil. We have Bob Fryer looking at all the production across the world, and we have Mike Daly looking at all the exploration across the world. One man doing it all over the world with one set of standard, standards. That is why we believe there is, where, where Bob has a, a very, very uh, fit-for-purpose organization now in aligning the company around the standards and, and reaching what you are after, the BP way of doing things. Thank Thanks you, a lot. Now we have Station A. Uh, Mr. Chairman, fellow shareholders, my name is Martin Simons, and I've been a continuing shareholder of this great company since 1954 which, if my arithmetic is correct, means 58 years. If there's anyone who's been a shareholder longer, perhaps they'd get together with me at the end of this meeting. I think we should pay tribute to the management for steadying the ship. It's been a horrendous problem. There have been some grave, wrenching decisions to be taken and I think we should give credit where credit is due. You've saved this company from a disaster. Now, if I could just talk about the Gulf affair, I think it's worth remembering that almost all the employees involved in this disaster were American citizens. Our partners, Halliburton and Transocean, are American companies. And what is troubling me, sir, is reports that we gave these companies indemnities in case anything goes wrong, we would carry the, the burden. That strikes me as absurd, quite absurd, and suggests our legal advice has been pretty ropey. Similarly, I'm concerned about the legal advice we've been given about our relations with our Russian partners, which I just don't understand how we can get ourselves into a position that give, give it, giving indemnities to people which encourages them to take shortcuts, if I put it that way, and that we've also seemed to have caused ourselves unnecessary grief 
in Russia. Now, if I may link that to some financial points, because I think this is important that this meeting gets also to the nitty-gritty of the affairs of the company. If you look at page 215 of the annual report, and I've given notice to this, to your investigations people, so you shouldn't be too surprised, they are the payment arrangements with our jointly controlled companies. And we seem to be paying them very much more promptly than they pay us for our mutual purchases and sales, and that makes me uncomfortable. Linked to that, I'm a bit uncomfortable that we've now got a trade receivable over a year of $500 million or thereabouts, and just wonder who that is, and that our delayed payments have gone up, yet our provision for bad debts has gone down. These are technical points, it's true. Could I just ask your help, sir, when we come to the voting, could you please indicate what proportion of the votes have been cast and whether Morgan Chase, who owns, controls 26%, are they here, present? Well, you know, when a shareholder representing 26% of the shares isn't here, this annual general meeting is a bit of a farce, isn't it, really? Uh, similarly, what about BlackRock, that American Barclays outfit? Are they here? I mean, between those two uh, American organizations, they own over 30% of our great company. I think it's disgraceful if they are indeed not here. Thank you very much for listening to me. Thanks a lot. First of all, let me just say to you, Mr. Simmons, it's great to have you back here. You, you, you do uh, care about the company, and you always ask very relevant questions. Um, let me... Um, the question about Transocean and how we work with subcontractors is extremely relevant. Uh, equally, uh, our joint venture in Russia, and how we ensure that we work in a safe way. These are matters that have been frequently on the board's agenda, and I'll start with those questions and hand over to Bob. Well, thank you, Mr. Simmons, and uh, again, also thank you for your uh, perseverance in staying with us and, and coming back again. Uh, you raise a really good point about contractors because it is interesting that BP, we've gone back and looked at this in great detail. If you go back and look at BP, like its other industry peers, the other big oil companies, we work with suppliers and contractors and partners. And we looked at this in detail, and 55% of the man hours that the company did are worked by contractors. Um, so we have now gone in even further and looked at the way we work with these third parties, particularly those that are involved in high-consequence, uh, high-risk uh, high activities. And then we looked at 21 other organizations around the world in different sectors, whether it's airlines or mining or construction or pharmaceuticals, to try to learn some of the lessons learned there, including nuclear as well, chemicals. Um, we found that those organizations, uh, they, they tend to work in arenas where they have fewer number of contractors they work with with very long-standing relationships supported by some shared structures and practices and the, and the rewards for contractors. So phase one of our management of contractors is now to begin to focus down around contractors that look at high consequence activities and reduce the number and have long-term strategic relationships with them. 
And as you can imagine, we're looking closely at those companies that you mentioned as well. The industry structure does release contractors from liabilities in a very broad way. So as we work and we are modifying contracts, we can't stand out and be the first one and the only one uh, to completely put liabilities with our contractors or they won't work for us. But I think you will see us over time here moving the industry uh, in this area. It's a big area of focus for us, so thank you. Uh, regarding Russia, I think what I would, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time there. I have a lot of experience there. And what I would say, it has been an enormously good business for BP. And it is worth a lot of noise, but it continues to be a good business for BP and was all the way through last year uh, and the noise that comes out in the press. It's a very entertaining subject, but we've had some very uh, experienced people who have made a huge difference in the TNKBP, which is a large Russian oil company, brought standards of safety into that company and changed the way that the company operates. And I would just say as shareholders, kind of look through the noise and look at the numbers. Um, and then I think there's the third question around accounts. Accounts, I think we will give uh, Brian Gilvari a chance mm -hmm. to speak for the first time at an AGM. Thank you, Chairman. And thank you, Mr. Simons, for forewarning us of the question, uh, which is incredibly helpful. So you're re relating to note 24 of the annual report, and you're right to highlight that current assets to current liabilities are in balance uh, for joint operated companies versus uh, the group. That's actually created by a single large receivable we have associated with two joint ventures we have with Husky, whereby Husky have uh, put in place their Sunrise assets in the upstream uh, in Canada, and we have a joint venture around Toledo. So there is a large receivable sitting there, and that's what creates this imbalance in our JCEs versus our normal group. Thank you. Uh, let me just say also on JP Morgan, they are the depository bank for American shares. This is a procedure that we inherited from, from Amico. Uh, all these various American shareholders, they do vote on their own through proxies, so they are represented here, although JP Morgan is not, but that's not their, their role here. Uh, I think we should go to station D. Hello. My name is Peter Barker. I am a shareholder. Mr. Chairman, you have just told us that over the coming decades, 80% of the world's energy demand will be met by fossil fuels. As a consequence of this, you state on page 23 of the annual report that you accept there will be a 28% rise in annual CO2 emissions globally by 2030. On the same page, you note that in this future, the future that you believe will happen, the world will fail to keep global temperature rise below 2 degrees. What the report doesn't say is that if the temperature rises beyond two degrees, then the world will have passed the tipping point on climate change, and we will almost certainly be on a path to a six-degree global temperature increase. This is the unavoidable consequence of the figures you quote. The experts are telling us that in a six-degree world, we'll face global food shortages, mass population shifts, frequent extreme weather disasters and the loss of major cities and other huge infrastructure problems, all of which will obviously have an effect on the world economy and on oil demand. I can only assume from the annual report that BP is planning for a six-degree world. Does the board foresee BP remaining a commercially successful company in such a world of climate chaos, the resulting economic and social impacts, 
And can you provide any information, Mr Chairman, on what plans the company is making to ensure its success in a six-degree world? Well, let me just say on, uh, on, on uh, our energy outlook, this is, not what, this is not what we would like to happen. This is, uh, this is not a, a proposition. This is just our best uh, estimate of what we think will happen. And that the 28% the, uh, increase, and we are showing that this is what we believe. Um, there is, as I said, basically the energy increase comes from the emerging markets where all these billions of people are striving for improving their, well, their uh, standard of living to our levels. Whereas in, our, in the mature markets, which is half the world's uh, GDP, there we already see a flattening of energy and we see even a, a decrease of fuel consumption with more biofuels coming in and we see a reduction of CO2 already happening. This is, this is the reality that we are facing. We, um, uh, because lack of other better alternatives yet, and we do believe better alternatives will come, and we are, last year we invested 1.6 billion into uh, new areas of, of energy to support the transition. We have been clear with our outlook. We have also, we advocate as much as we can for, the, uh, for setting a price on carbon so that we can divert into less carbon intensive fuels. It is clear that to us that in the next 10, 20 years, the most important things we can do to mitigate for climate is actually to work on energy efficiency. It is still the majority of the energy content down in the ground before we use it is lost in waste, lost in heat on the way. Energy efficiency is incredibly important. Secondly, if we can turn coal use into gas use, we can also have a major impact. Probably few things can impact so much than if we could do those things. And we are advocating for it and we're showing it. But there is not really a, uh, alternatives available. And of course, this is a political matter. We are doing our job to fuel the world with its demand. Uh, C, please. Well, Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Kurt Bückelmann from Austria. I joined BP uh, and was appointed by Mr. Budenberg, a legendary guy in Germany in 1964, for the, at that time, biggest project of the international oil industry, the Transalpine Pipeline. Uh, I was on the board of 10 people to build this thing, and then I voted for operating it also, and I was managing director there for about 30 years. And since then, I'm also shareholder of BP, a very small one. And uh, I was very sad about the things which happened in the Gulf and uh, before in Alaska. And I'm following the destiny of BP as the company where I started in the oil industry. But I had a very good comparison always because in this Transalpine project, there was Exxon with 20%. Mobile Oil, BP, and Shell, and many other companies, the 12 biggest companies of the world, so I, I was always able to compare. Now, uh, at the moment, my three questions are the following. There are three sorrows. 
And uh, the question, the first one is, uh, I appreciate what you have done, Mr. Dudley. I appreciate what you have done, Mr. Chairman, after the Gulf spill and try to revamp the whole organization and get out this new code of conduct. By the matter, there is no date in the whole report. If you look, uh, when, from when is it? There is no date in it. Uh, this is just a little fly, not a big thing, but because the report itself, the conduct thing is a very big step ahead, in my opinion. My question is uh, whether the commitment which you say for the shareholders is not too one-sided and will not lead in the future to the same problems again, because today the new companies of tomorrow, I think they have to work for the stakeholders and not only for the shareholders. Examples. Uh, in the reports which are available here for this meeting, uh, for instance, I take the report uh, sustainability, which is part of the reports. On page two, you see the oil spills, the number of oil spills, and then you see a tiny little figure. Uh, and in this tiny little figure, you can read, uh, okay, now go to page number 233 of the big report, which is here. The big report on 233, and there you read further details about the problem, which is uh, the quantity of spill and so on. So, in my opinion, this is not, uh, not, the, not the spirit of the new code of conduct, because it is again hidden. You, you hide with these figures, stating only 1.7 or 0.8, with a little d on it, you hide the real problem because uh, if you put the real figures in, you would see in this report immediately on page two that what happened really in the Gulf. And this is only one example. Same thing as oil spills in the uh, summary review to, uh, 2011 on page 17. There you see also oil spills. Uh, 2010, you have 261 oil spills, which is about the average of what has happened before and happened uh, after that. But really, the real problem is not, not seen on this report, because then it would go much over and above the whole statistics. So it's also not that you cover it up, but I think you are not uh, being uh, true to what your new rules are. I admit it will take some time, but I, I would propose to do it. Uh, the second question is uh, the investors first. Uh, you, you acquired the oil sand business in, uh, in, in Canada. On the page 70 of the big report, you have, this is the big report, you have details about this project. And there, my fear is, and please, uh, this is my question also, how do you provide that uh, the, the, the sheer reality of having acquired this oil sand uh, business uh, doesn't lead to in, you into temptation to, again, not adhe adhere to this new code of conduct because this is a nasty operation. Uh, and you, you yourself admit it, saying that it's over and above the American, uh, the American uh, emissions, emission rate, 5 to 15 percent higher emissions then the average crude oil consumed in the U.S. You know the average crude oil consumed in the U.S. 
is the highest in the world, so it's the worst in the world, environmentally speaking. Therefore, in my opinion, your temptation to go in the wrong direction with this project is very high, and I would like to know how, how you see this. This is my second concern, uh, raised in a question. There's only a, a third one now, if you have the time. The third one is... Uh, Is BP, as a company who was launched of being a new energy company by, by Lord Brownie in the years 2004-2005, Johannesburg process, uh, going back uh, with this oil shale business and so on to be an old-aged uh, energy company who is bound to burn something and thus have the emission problem in this limited planet. And now comes my proposal, which I, I try to word as a question, because only questions should be said. There are uh, new systems being developed. I'm a member of ATTAC. This is an international organization, non-government, trying to change the economy to make something alternative. And we have developed a new kind of economy in, beyond in starting, uh, which would be called economy for the common good. So not the shareholder interest only is the most important thing, but environment and the social business for, for the rest of the world is, must be an equal high goal. So my question is whether you would be uh, interested in a study which even takes BP further of that what you have already done uh, into the... Uh, direction of an alternative energy company which is working in the interest of the citizens of the world, of the people of this world, and not only of the shareholders. Thank All you. Right. <clears throat> Thank you so much. Um, uh, a couple of comments. Um, first of all, um, I'm glad that you show the time that you've spent reading our documents. That, that is encouraging. Uh, We'll take the advice on, on producing them and writing them in a, in a, more, in a better way uh, for the reader. Uh, let me also say that the, the, um, as a company, of course, we are, we are all, all of us are shareholders, and we own the company, and, and as such, it's the, it's the shareholders that, of course, have to have a say in where this company is going. But it's all, we cannot be successful without the approval and the trust from, from stakeholders. So whatever we do in society must all, always be, uh, be thought of in, in, in that context. We, um, uh, I would like to see if there are, before we get to oil sands, so go, go to, to um, see if there are any other questions before I answer oil sands. Uh, is there anything you would like to say on new energy, alternative energies? Well, I, th I think there's a couple of very important points you raised. Uh, one, I take your point about if we're, if we're not clear in our reports, we'll work to do that absolutely going forward. The new code of conduct was put in place in 2012, the beginning of 2012. Um, it's meant to be timeless going forward, so, but we'll make sure we next year date it for sure. Um, 
If I could comment on the role of BP in society, it's not our role to take the role of government, but I, I do think it's important for you as shareholders to know that of the enormous contributions that we do make in our local communities around the world, including the jobs, taxes, uh, we see the indirect benefit of what BP brings in a calculation of economic benefits of the world of around $345 billion of prosperity to the communities and, and countries where we work. We paid $16 billion in taxes around the world in 20, 2011. That's versus $12 billion in 2010 and $10 billion in 2009. Um, we do, in all of our locations, develop community programs um, which focus primarily on enterprise development and education. Uh, and our spending programs in communities directly have been uh, more than $100 million last year. So I, I think it's important for you to know we do realize that we need to act responsibly in the locations where we operate. In terms of an energy company, a new energy company, BP did exper experiment with all kinds of alternative energies over the last decade. And we need to do things at scale and where we can be successful and be good at that, and that was where we have focus now on ethanol production, biofuels that does not compete with food in Brazil, new generations of enzyme developments that could further increase the uh, efficiencies of, of biofuels and uh, molecules called biobutanol. Uh, we do that in the UK and Hull. We have a big center, and we do it in the US as well. And then we are actively involved in wind in the US at very large scale. Um, but I think for a company like BP, after the kind of events we've had in 2010, it was time for us to focus on what we could do well, and, and um, it is a substantial investment by the company. So, oil sands now. I believe we have a few questions on Station D on oil sands. Could we take them now, please? comes our old Frank Clayton, Thomas Muller. <laughs> Good to see you, Chairman. Welcome back. Thank you. Uh, greetings, the board, the shareholders, and of course uh, to Carl. Um, <clears throat> my name is uh, Clayton Thomas Mueller. Uh, allow me the formality of introducing myself in my own native language. Bonjour, Danse, Songebene, Sienene, Tishnakas, Kanuto, Dem. I won't go into a big statement. I do want to respect the time and all of the other shareholders that want to ask questions. But uh, I come here with a very specific question related uh, to the emergence of a constitutional game-changing lawsuit that has been agreed upon by the courts in the province of Alberta, Canada, where the tar sands is situated, and where your Sunrise assets and other assets exist. The Beaver Lake Cree Nation has brought forward a treaty rights litigation, a constitutional challenge to the validity of the over 19,000 leases that exist in their traditional territory. And this also includes your assets. So if Beaver Lake Cree Nation win this legal challenge, it will have huge implications for the tar sands expansion, 
with almost 50% of expansion plans within their traditional territory. BP is listed in this lawsuit along with about a dozen other oil companies operating in the tar sands as well as the federal government of Canada and the provincial government of Alberta. And so my question for you, the board, and you know my message, I guess, to the shareholders is what is BP's contingency plan should the courts rule in favor of Beaver Lake Cree Nation? Such a ruling would essentially make your current leases illegal. And why is BP continuing to pursue risky development in a landlocked oil source? We've seen subsequent uh, defeat of the Keystone XL pipeline uh, with reorganizing efforts to build that. We see a massive amount of resistance to the Enbridge Northern Gateway pipeline proposal. All of this being driven by an emerging Aboriginal legal uh, Aboriginal rights legal regime in Canada, and so what I'm curious about is what are the the contingency plans that you all are taking in the wake of this uh, very significant legal challenge um, and the subsequent legal challenges that will be brought forward as a result. And then in conclusion, I do have a statement that I will not read, but it comes from community members in Beaver Lake Cree Nation. I do have it in duplicate, and I'd love to give you, uh, the chairman, and as well as Bob Dudley, a copy uh, of this statement. We committed that we would deliver that by hand to you all. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'll be happy to receive that when, when we meet afterwards. Any other questions on oil sands? All right. One more, please. Okay. Um, hi, I'm Janet Payne. I'm a shareholder. Um, with Ecoside on its way to becoming an international crime, your decision, Mr Chairman, to go into tar sands, or as you've now renamed them, heavy oils, um, could one day land you in prison. Um, does this worry you at all? I, sorry, I didn't get the question. It's okay, I'll, uh, I'll repeat it. Um, with Ecoside on its way to becoming an international crime, your decision, Mr Chairman, to go into tar sands or heavy oil could one day land you in prison, and does this worry you? Well, let me, let me then first uh, say that um, when it comes to, to, to Clayton's comment, one more, all right. Hi, um, the proposed EU fuel quality directive calls for a 6% emissions reduction target for transport fuels. When passed, this could have an impact on our recently acquired Canadian oil sands operations and may be a considerable threat to the profitability of BP's operations. What is BP doing to assure its shareholders that such unfair legislation will not pass and impact our dividends? So, I will start saying a few things, and then I'll ask also Bob to, to add to this. Um, and I did actually, this year, I was up there in Canada visiting our oil sands projects um, and, and uh, in Alberta. It was, a, 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 in many ways, an interesting, uh, interesting visit. Um, first of all, uh, oil sands today, and I'm sure every, everyone may be aware of that, but oil sands today is the biggest industry in Canada, just past uh, the automotive industry. It's, it's of huge importance to Canada. Um, the oil sands, where, where 
when, when, you explore, when you exploit oil sands, some 20% of the oil sands can be extracted through, through actually scraping it off the ground, which is basically what we call mining. And, and, and that is what leaves these huge scars in nature, and then it's being reclaimed, the land, over time. And, and we have tailing there are tailing ponds for sedimentation of the, of the waste. Um, we are not involved in that. We are involved in something called SAG-D, which means that we put down a pipe with steam that melts the oil, put down another pipe with a collector that collects the oil, the heavy oil, and then that is in a closed system brought to a refinery. We only touch some 3% of the leased land, and, and when we have exploited it, it's, uh, it's reclaimed. The, uh, the, it is true that we need steam to um, melt the oil, which means that there are, it's considered to be, in, in, in reports, 5 to 15% more CO2 emissions from the well to the wheel when, when oil sands are used. Uh, to explore for the oil sands, and, and the good thing with, with, the, with the oil sands as such is that it's less risky from the exploration itself. Everybody knows where the oil sand is. Um, the, uh, uh, the decision to exploit the oil sands is, of course, a political one in Canada. We are, we are all living by the... By the, the um, uh, licenses we get under the regulations, and they're very, very tight regulations. And these include uh, continuous dialogue and, and, and consultation with, uh, uh, with the First Nations, the uh, Aboriginals. Um, we are, as the Aboriginals, as the, 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 the regulators, extremely uh, careful and, and, and eager to understand if there are any health issues at all, uh, and that is being followed. Um, so um, uh, I believe that the oil sands, the oil sands will be explored, and, and because of if we go back to the 2030 outlook, the oil sands for North America, in combination with the new gas find, in combinations with the Gulf of Mexico oil assets, is expected to bring North America into a self-sufficient position when it comes to energy. And I think that's very important to understand, why, to, to know when you understand why the oil sands are so attractive to the American, uh, to North American countries. Please. Uh, thank you, well, thank you, Chairman. Thank you, Frank and Clayton and the, the two ladies who made comments there. I think for the, for the benefit of shareholders, to put a couple of things in perspective, that Canada's oil sands are the third largest proven oil reserves in the world behind Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. And I think Canada as a country is intent on developing them. Uh, we did. We carefully looked at the approval processes and decisions to invest in, in Canadian oil sands. Uh, I, I think Carl Hendrick's point uh, that we do not invest in mining of oil sands. It is a very different beast than... SAG-D, which means steam-assisted gravity drainage. It's a very different concept with a completely different footprint. And so you won't see BP doing the mining. Others can do that. Um, I think that when you look at the greenhouse gas emissions, as there's one myth about the incredible high emissions of oil sands. In the kinds of projects that we work in, it's maybe 5 to 15% over the average for North America, and very comparable 
to the greenhouse gas emissions that are involved in moving a tanker of oil, for example, from the Middle East. It's very, very similar, and that is part of our thinking in terms of our commitment there. Regarding the, um, the constitutional challenge, uh, we have worked with the government of Canada, the federal government of Canada and the laws, as well as the province of Alberta, uh, when we made decisions and made investments based on, on those, um, those laws. We work closely with them. On, the, on our projects, um, we manage them through governance committees with BP and our partners with equal representation from government of Canada uh, and First Nations communities. Um, they meet on a, on a very regular basis. We ensure that our activities are very much in line with plans and the directions that are set out by the me- members of those groups. Uh, we have very high standards to how we will deliver these projects, both ethical and environmental. Uh, we have put a, a great deal of time into that, and I think, uh, Frank, I would invite you to visit our, our projects that you mentioned in Sunrise and the activities that are underway. I think you will see they are different than some of the activities broadly in Alberta. I think it's good for shareholders. Again, Canada as a country will have a right to develop its resources, and it will, I think, do that. And I think having companies who do it like BP in responsible ways is a good thing for Canada and the First Nations people. I would then like to go to Station B. We have a very patient man there. I've been waiting for a while. Good afternoon. My name is Luke, and I'm a shareholder. Sir, I noticed that the strategy of BP appears to be immersing itself steeply in the BRIC countries of emerging markets. My first question relates to Brazil, where in March of this year, you announced that you had four deep seawater licenses for exploration and production of oil and gas in the Barejas and Chiara basins in northeast Brazil. This area is supposed to be one of the world's greatest reserves. Please, can you comment on this? My second question pertains to Russia and whereby I know that the contract with Rosneft was annulled in August of 2011, will you revisit or renegotiate exploration and production in the supposedly vastly uh, great reserves in the East Prinovo zemelsky field in the Russian Arctic uh, shelf? I know for a fact that your principal vehicle is TNK, BP, whereby you have a 50-50 joint venture with the AAR3 oligarchs. And in this sense, one-fifth of TNKBP accounts for your global oil and gas reserves, one-quarter for your production, global production of oil and gas, and one-tenth of your all-round profits. Sir, you have said that BP has not become great by being timid. So are you timid enough not to approach, you know, the uh, Russian government or Rosneft itself again to renegotiate as to why you and or TNKBP should not re-enter the uh, East prinovo zemelsky field? That's my second question. The third question is that in India, you paid 7.2 billion US dollars in February of 2011 for a 30% joint stake with 
Reliance Industries of India, whereby you have 23 production contracts for exploration and production of oil and gas in the Bay of Bengal. But it has not been up till now that there's only been just gas been starting to be extracted from the Bay of Gulf, if I understand it correctly. That's one year, and there's no sign of BP re-entering the deep water drilling, which is only 4,600 feet in this case. Why is BP shirking from this when you clearly said that you're not shy of re-entering the uh, deep sea water drilling for oil and gas? My fourth question pertains to China, where you have been in since 2003 in various formats. One of the most exciting things to emerge from China at the present moment is that it's supposed to have perhaps even more shale gas and oil than the United States. Is BP involved in a meaningful or significant way in this manner? But perhaps the more pertinent question to ask is that how exciting is shale, oil and gas exploration in the Utica, Pleasant Point Basin in Ohio and your other shale gas in Texas and Mississippi like in Woodford, Haynesville, Fayetteville and Eagle Bird, if I understand this to be correct. How exciting is it? My fifth question pertains to the recent fact that you have announced that uh, the LNG extraction, you have agreed with your two other partners, ExxonMobil and also ConocoPhillips, to build a network of pipes together with Transnational Canada to a southern port, which has still not been decided, with building of a plant with LNG, of which there have been some secret deals between ExxonMobil and uh, ConocoPhillips, of which you are not privy to. I don't understand, sir, why you have agreed to this when you have to cough up 40 billion US dollars just for building the plant, and it takes about 10 years, let alone the one year in deciding the, the certain uh, relevant points. There are three unknown unknowns which are significant. First is you don't know, you cannot predict how fast is the rate of industrialization of China. You don't know how competitive are the LNG coming from Australia and Africa, and you don't know whether your export licenses will be revoked by the United States when there's a clause in the 1977 agreement pertaining to this extraction of LNG All right. gas. All right. Okay. Yeah. So can I just move swiftly to two small points? One two small is points. Vivergo Fuels, a biofuel. You seem to have developed a very exciting fuel called E85B, which is 85% ethanol with 15% of butanol, but you're putting it on hold. You have this collaborative uh, stance together with British Sugar and also DuPont of America. Why have you put this on hold? And my last question, but not least, is that you have targeted a disposal assets of US $38 billion. So far, you have achieved, with all the disposals uh, in mind, $23 billion. BP became great, like you say, by not becoming timid. And the history is that you amassed Amoco, um, Arco, and Burma Castrol in the late 1990s. And therefore, are you saving this money to buy, buy either BG of the United Kingdom or if not Petrobras of Brazil? Thank you. So, that was quite a few questions. Um, the, the, uh, the last one, I can only say that we are, 
We're trimming the portfolio, the 38 billion, to start with because we needed the money for the Gulf of Mexico. We continue to expand that ambition because we, through the acquisition, have grown quite a wide portfolio. And we wanted to focus it more on the areas of our strength, realizing value that uh, was higher for others than for us. So that, that is the reason for that. We, uh, I will then, the last question on biofuels, I think we should direct to Ian Kohn. So we get some spreading some words here. But before that, we'll have uh, uh, maybe to Byron, yes? But first, the BRIC countries and uh, Bob. That was quite, I think that was all the big ones. I think you hit them all. I think uh, I'm, and uh, you're right, we're not timid. And uh, we are very excited about some of the places that you mentioned. I'll go through them quickly, but they are very significant. And you've, you've followed our activities in these areas very closely. So well, well done, and thank you. Uh, Brazil, we did sign uh, four blocks in the northeast province of Brazil. It has, it's interesting if you look at the geologic margins of South America and West Africa, all the way across, the, there are geologic analogs across uh, from West Africa to Brazil, and we see some relationships there. And so we believe these are promising areas in Brazil. I would note that they are wildcat exploration because there has been no uh, drilling in those areas yet. So they're perspective, uh, but they are exploration. And of course, we know there's no certainty in exploration. Uh, on Russia, on the exploration blocks in the Arctic, um, Last year, we signed 55 blocks of exploration around the world. And our exploration team has a very full plate of exploration. Those three blocks in the Arctic uh, uh, weren't brought to reality with Rosneft, but that's okay. We have a lot on our plate. Um, but the Arctic is a very, very long-term area. This is something that's not going to move very quickly. By nature, it's very long-term. And BP is a very long-term company. So I think there's lots of uh, time and uh, events that can unfold for the Arctic in general, whether that's Canada, whether that's Alaska, whether that's Norway, or whether that's Russia for BP. On India, you are right. We signed and made the largest direct foreign investment in India last year. Along with that came, I believe it's 22 exploration or production blocks. 30% interest in a producing gas field that produces about 15% uh, of all of India's gas needs right now. It's a country that is, quite frankly, woefully short of energy. And it burns a lot of coal, and natural gas is something that I believe India needs. And we have just filed development plans for four satellite areas around the producing field in India, and we have plans to a uh, continuous exploration program in India uh, shooting seismic and doing work in the years to come. So we remain very enthusiastic about our work in India. And in China, we have uh, cooperation programs, and we are working with CNPC, the Chinese National Petroleum Company, and Sinopec in shale areas and in coal bed methane areas in China. And it's a question mark whether China has vast quantities of shale gas, but I will say if it does it has the potential to change the energy flows of the world. Um, we are also active in China drilling for gas in the South China Sea with the Chinese National Offshore Oil Company. We partner with Chinese companies in various parts of the world as well. You mentioned the Utica Shale in the U.S. We have just signed uh, contracts for around 86,000 square acres 
in the Utica shale in the U.S. It is what's called wet gas or oil shales. Uh, these look highly prospective to us and economic. We'll continue to do that as well as focusing on the Eagle Ford out of that list that you mentioned. The other areas have more drier gas. Our project and our progress in Alaska. Alaska for a long time wanted to build a pipeline to the lower 48 with natural gas. With low prices in the U.S. in the lower 48, it's probably uneconomic, and they have now been encouraging the companies to think about LNG out of Alaska. You are right. There are many questions. Uh, I don't believe there's any secret agreements between Conoco and Exxon. I think we'll be working together with the state there. Um, But we're not timid, so we're going to work through some of those challenges, and there may be a, a really good economic project in the future for shareholders down the road. I think I will stop there and turn right. over to Then we'll hand over to Byron on biofuels. Now, I want to, want to thank you for your, your uh, deep interest in, in the uh, alternative uh, energy program of BP. Bob, Bob outlined what we're doing uh, in, in Brazil, in uh, the United States, and in the U.K., but with respect to your specific question about the Ververgo uh, joint venture up, up at Hull, uh, that, that facility is, is continuing to be constructed, and we're looking forward to the commissioning of it uh, later on in the year. So uh, we, we definitely have not uh, stepped aside and, and stopped on, on the progress of, of that ethanol facility. All right. Should we go to Station A? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, My name is Louise Rouse, and I am a shareholder. Um, I want to refer back to Mr. Dudley's point about the important socioeconomic contribution that BP makes to many countries around the world through its tax payments. Um, Tax payment transparency is fast becoming a sustainability issue, and therefore I was really happy to see it mentioned on page 44 of this year's sustainability review. I also know that BP was a founding member of the EITI and submits reports to EITI-compliant countries. However, the fact remains that we still lag behind a number of our peers with respect to the level of reporting we provide in one centralised place, for example, our Global Sustainability Review, in relation to tax payments in various countries. Given the composition of our board, the the most immediately comparable pair is Anglo-American, who on page 45 of its um, sustainability review this year provides much greater detail on taxes borne and collected in a number of countries in which it operates. So my question is whether the board will commit to raising with BP's reporting team the possibility of including more detailed reporting on taxes uh, borne and paid in a number of countries and I know that Ms. Carroll, uh, with her experience as CEO of Anglo-American, could surely provide some very useful insights into the business benefits of doing so. Well, we certainly are always eager to, to report, to improve our reports as much as possible. And, and, and at the same time, more disclosures are, are sometimes creating even more, more questions. So it's, impor- it's important that it, it creates clarity. Is there any view that you have on this, either Bob or Brian? No, I think uh, the trend in the world is reporting uh, with transparency, and I, we have been uh, active in in, uh, in this transparency in the countries. That's why it's in our sustainability report. We have to be careful. In some countries, 
some of the things that we would want, might want to disclose, uh, it's against the laws of some of the places where we operate. We get caught in a catch-22. So we're going to continue to move right up to the edge of what we are allowed to do by laws around the world. And you'll see us do nothing but want to be transparent in what we do. All right, can you go to B? I'm Joe Ram, and I'm a proxy. My question is about uh, BP sponsorship about London 2012. I've noticed a large amount of advertising of BP sponsorship and cultural events that are going to take place this year. I expect this runs into tens of millions and is way beyond what BP would normally be expected to contribute to public life as a good corporate citizen. I assume that such expenditure is justified by the company on the grounds of receiving a return of some sort, just as with any other investment of our company's capital. So my question to you, Mr. Chairman, is how much money has BP invested in sponsorship activities for this year's events in the UK? And detail for us what return you believe the company is going to get on this investment. Well, let, <clears throat> let me first say that the, uh, the Olympic Games, the fact that they're held in, in, uh, in UK we think is, is a great thing for, for UK. It's a great thing for, for London. Um, we, are, we are therefore, um, we applied to be a sponsor, uh, partly because we want to be a good citizen. We, we, we want to help showcase uh, what the UK can do. Uh, we also do it because it, it uh, gives us a chance to showcase what we can do, to build our brand, to show what we do in in, in various new forms of energy. Uh, it gives a chance to uh, uh, build pride among the employees, gives us a chance to develop corporate uh, relationships. So these are, these are the facts. And it's always hard to calculate returns on things like, like building relationships and, and, and so on. But we think if we look back on the Olympic activities in the world over the last uh, 25, 30 years, they've been hugely successful for the organizing countries and, and, and four sponsors. Well, I'll, I will hand over here to Wiyang Kong to uh, give us a little more background. Uh, thank you, Chairman. Uh, Joe, I was involved, uh, amongst others in this team, in, in uh, writing a business case for the Olympic investment. So the first thing I want to say is that we went through exactly the same process as we would do for any investment, I can assure you of that. Uh, as the, the Chairman's alluded to, I mean, we're very proud to be a Tier 1 sponsor, and we are the oil and gas sponsor. Uh, we're also a major sponsor of the Cultural Olympiad and uh, the one of the sustainability partners. Just to give you a little sense of uh, a little bit more detail as to how we get value out of this, uh, clearly our brand projection and connection with uh, our customers and society is one dimension of it. The second one is in commercial relationships, we've been able to use the Olympics to enhance our relationships with strategic partners, um, such as FedEx, for example, and with our retail customers. Thirdly, with our employees, we run a number of competitions uh, to involve our employees and reward them for this. And fourthly, as the chairman said, in our other commercial relationships with business partners around the world. Uh, the, in the sustainability area, we're able to demonstrate the way in which we lead in new ways, new technologies for 
providing energy responsibly to the world. And finally, we're partnering with a number of Olympic associations in countries that are very important to BP, such as with the United States, with uh, Azerbaijan, Angola, uh, Egypt, Georgia, Turkey, and Trinidad and Tobago. So it's entirely in line with our strategy, and I'm pleased to report to you that the benefits from this are on track for what we originally uh, laid out. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have at least 12 more questions. We have to have shorter questions, shorter answers. See. Hello, my name is Ms. Baker, and I'd like to address the board um, concerning your sustainability review um, that says that renewable energy sources, I quote, will be essential in addressing the challenges of energy security and climate change over the long term. So I'd like to ask, why have you closed down uh, BP Solar, your longest-running renewable energy division? Is solar going to be part of your long-term plan? And if it's not, why so? And how does investment in renewables compare to investment in fossil fuels? Well, we have closed down the solar plant simply because it's a low-margin low margin manufacturing business of, of glass panels, and, and, and we are not able to compete there effectively. So uh, it's, not, it's not that we do not believe that solar power won't play an important role. Next, D. My name's Dr. Sean O'Leary. I'm a proxy here today, but um, I'm soon to become a shareholder, in fact, because uh, I've just inherited a lot of shares from my late father, and I'm wondering whether to keep them or not. Um, Mr. Dudley mentioned the Tangu project in Indonesia, as a BP shareholder, I was dismayed to read recently of the imprisonment in Indonesia of a Mr. Philip Karma, who was sentenced to 15 years in jail in 2005 for taking part in a ceremony in which the West Papuan independence flag was raised. In November 2011, the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention ruled that his imprisonment violated international law, even Indonesian law, and that he should be released immediately and unconditionally. My concern is that by undertaking large investment programs in Indonesia, such as the Tangu liquefied natural gas project, BP lends the Indonesian authorities credibility which they do not merit no civilized country should imprison its citizens in violation of international law. In order that a shareholder like myself can be confident that my company really does support the UN Declaration of Human Rights, as stated in the Tangu Project Social Policy, can I ask the board to raise the issue of Mr. Karma's imprisonment with the Indonesian authorities and to request his release in compliance with international law and standards. The board should ensure that they make it clear that shareholders are uneasy about investment in countries which do not adhere to these same standards. Thank you. Thank you. Bob? Yes, well, th thank you for the comment. I'm, I'm, I have some awareness of this. BP has been operating in Indonesia for 35 years, and our track record makes us confident we can operate there. West Papua, uh, because it is an incredibly sensitive area, West Papua, we have set up a Tengu Independent Advisory Council with a West Papuan statesman 
and a, uh, an actual senator from the United States. We have had this advisory panel in, in place for a number of years now who advise us on things such as the political nature of what is happening in West Papua and, and in Jakarta. And I take your comment. I would like to take your question back to that panel and, and discuss that with the panel and then determine what would be the next step. BP is not, um, it's not right for BP to take a position on West Papua independence. That's probably not our right role. But uh, your particular no, point, we'll you. take to the panel and move it forward. May I reply to that briefly? I'm not asking for you to take a position on mm. West Papua independence. Mm. Yes. I'm asking you to raise the issue of the imprisonment of Mr. Karma and ensure that the Indonesians behave in accordance with international law and you support thereby the universal United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. May I send you the information about this case, Mr. Dudley? Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Sure. Now we go to Station A. Uh, Phil Clark, a shareholder and pensioner, and it's about the pensions I want to ask you a question. On page 238 of the annual report and accounts, uh, it discloses the, the parlous state of the, the pension funds whereby we see that the deficit on all the, all the various schemes has increased from $7.7 billion to $12 billion by the end of 2011. Um, just to keep this short, can you tell us what you intend to do about that to actually reduce the deficit, but also how much you will commit to reducing it by by the end of 2012, please? Is this Brian, please? Thanks, Jim. And thanks, Phil. Thanks for the question. Uh, you, you're correct to say that we saw an imbalance at the end of 2011 with the uh, total liabilities increasing. That was all driven by the very low discount rates that we currently have in the market. In actual fact, that position has recovered significantly through the first quarter, and those funds are now 98% funded. So actually, we are in a very fortunate position for our pensioners that the UK and US pension funds are incredibly well funded. Thank you. B. Um, Harold Gervick, shareholder. Um, I have spoken before, and um, I would like to uh, return to some of those comments that I've made at previous AGMs in a moment. Um, I heard with great interest the uh, speech that you, Mr. Chairman, made and Mr. Dudley, and um, it does create further questions that I want to address. The expansion of the... Well, first of all, it was essential that you did make the changes that you have, and I found that quite interesting. Um, but this, as I have said, has thrown up further questions uh, which need to be uh, gone into a bit more fully. Um, I also read your uh, corporate governance statement in the um, main report, um, and page 122 was of particular interest. What I can't understand is how, on my previous speeches, um, I had gone to great pains to point out that after the Texas um, problems, um, the board didn't seem to be taking as much responsibility as they might and should have done because subsequent problems arose with Texas that shouldn't have done certainly for the extended period that it did. And it came as a, a considerable surprise that in view of all of that, we then had the um, 
terrible explosion that happened subsequently um, elsewhere in, in the uh, Macando world. I am concerned that, that um, complacency seems to be the underlying problem as it was throughout the preceding period before Macando. Um, it, it must have prevailed because I can't fail to see how um, such an experience should have arisen. Um, I am now bothered that uh, having taken the steps that you have to um, rectify the situation, and we can't afford to have another incident of this sort at all, uh, it, so it was quite vital that these changes should take place. But the problem that it does set in is that with all the committees that are now involved in your corporate governance, um, this will possibly create further problems. Your suggestion that new um, directors go to uh, at least one visit on site in a year seems to me far inadequate for what we're now uh, having contemplated by Mr. Dudley's expansion uh, as he's described it. Um, I think that directors must get much more involved than that on all sites um, in, in order that they have fruitful discussions. Um, if they don't go on site, they won't be able to do this. Um, one interesting thought that came out um, of the comment that facilitators after 2.10 uh, hold meetings with the directors to fully explore what's going on and develop uh, ideas for future. Now, this happened from 2.10 on. You, you state it in your report. There was another one in 2011. Now, this didn't obviate the problems that arose with Macando. Um, so we can get very complacent about setting up committees for this, that, and the other, but they have to be administered by someone that's got a, a key role that can sort out what's going on between the committees and that they don't just overlap one another and people then become complacent because somebody else is, has done or might do uh, some research on a particular aspect. Complacency is the greatest problem and I, I, I think that you've got to safeguard against that, particularly now with your greater expansion uh, program that you've outlined. It worries me also that in your response to Mr. Simon's question uh, and, and the way in which subcontractors are controlled or not controlled, as the case may be, um, that this situation could easily perpetuate itself. We're going to be deep-sea drilling in Australia. We're going to be doing it in America and so on. What steps will be taken to overcome the necessity of virtually instant requirement for means of overcoming great problems as they might arise or develop much more rapidly than might be expected? Thank you. Thank, thanks a lot. It's, um, it, a lot of your comments are almost rhetoric. Uh, but I'll comment on, on some of them there. Uh, first of all, uh, I can assure you that complacency, whether it's ever been there, that's not for me to judge, but it is not there today. It is with huge seriousness that Bob and the team is taking on the, the change programs in, in BP. Um, the, uh, 
if there is anything also that is a guiding star for Bob and the team, it's is to reduce complexity, not to increase it, not to expand into uh, to all kinds of different areas, but actually to contract, to simplify, and to get out of certain activities where the returns are simply maybe okay, but they are small and they take a disproportional attention. So this is, this is happening. It is true that uh, non-executive directors on the board need to be much more involved. Uh, of course, for all the wrong reasons, but in the normal case, we would have had maybe 15 board meetings since two years. We've had almost 45. Uh, to that comes many, many committee meetings like the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and you're right that every committee that we start will add complexity, but in this case, the Gulf of Mexico committee was an absolute must for us to be able to control and m administrate and manage all the, uh, the changes that came from the Gulf of Mexico. So I think you have a lot of good points. I, I think we, uh, we need to make sure there's no complacency with drive us strategy forward to a, a less complex company. Um, just one further point, uh, which I overlooked. In an earlier intervention, I suggested that um, it was probably necessary because of the type of company that we are, that um, directors should not be involved in other companies. Uh, really, it was a, a full-time activity, being a, a director of BP as a non-executive non non director. Um, now, this looks as if it's going to be even more necessary because of the shortage of time that will be available to directors. Well, I, can, I, can, I, I actually agree with you that non-executive directors in the past could sometimes have five, six directorships. I just think in, in the future you will see non-executive directors have fewer and be deeper involved. It's not full-time employments, full-time assignments, but it certainly will take more from as these companies have grown in, in, in size and complexity. I think we'll move to D. John Farmer, Chairman Shareholder. You said in your speech today, Chairman, that we BP measure success according to shareholder return, and that evokes the business model section of the summary of your review, page uh, 10 and report, page 25, which says our objective is to create value for shareholders and supplies of energy for the world in a safe and responsible way, we strive to be a safety leader in that industry. The trouble is, Chairman, that has not happened. BP has variously killed and spilled from Alaska to Tesco, to Texas to the Gulf of Mexico. Please would you comment on this um, and its consequences uh, in relation to four issues. First, production is down as the summary review shows on page 16 and the report on page 52. Presumably sustaining production is necessary to generate the revenue and thus the company's profits and shareholder return. What is being done about it? Secondly, uh, asset sales, which we have touched on. What will be the retardant effect of this variously 38 or $40 billion of asset sales, because presumably these assets BP acquired uh, for their potential benefit, and without them, uh, surely the company is going to be uh, hampered. 
even if you may have prioritized uh, disposals according to likely relative return. Thirdly, Chairman, uh, Russia. Again, already touched on um, that the chief executive should describe it as generating a lot of noise is surely an understatement because he was virtually hounded out, well, he was hounded out of Russia, taking refuge in, I believe, Switzerland, um, owing to the turbulence of that relationship. Is this really the considered the appropriate long-term relationship, the TNK-BP relationship for BP, given the uh, relative large importance of Russia to the company's fortunes? Uh, you may not be too explicit in this meeting, but uh, may I, in the hearing of the board, suggest that you should perhaps be thinking about it earnestly because uh, it must surely be consuming vast amounts of management time uh, managing these um, turbulent and volatile Russian partners. And fourthly, Chairman, uh, something rather longer term, but which I think is worth raising, particularly as the Chief Executive said earlier that BP is a very long-term company, and it is uh, alternative fuels. You've mentioned BP involvement in biofuels and wind, and also its understandable withdrawal from solar because of low margin, but these technologies have little to do with hydrocarbons, and scientific consensus is that they are expensive modes of generation, wind furthermore being intermittent and biomass occupying a lot of land for the energy output. What, if anything, has the, has the company done about considering nuclear? Because, the, again, scientific consensus is that... Uh, it's a clean fuel, a clean generation method, far more, uh, with a far greater potential capacity than these uh, fringe generation methods. And history shows plenty of examples of companies persisting in their current market, in your case hydrocarbons, and over time being superseded by changing needs and technology. And clearly, nuclear will not make, it would not be immediately implemented uh, by BP, neither would it m make an immediate return. But given the uh, appropriate long-term aspirations of BP, perhaps you should be considering it. And uh, you'll be aware that two generators, RWE and E.ON, have just put their Horizon nuclear generation uh, subsidiary up for sale. Um, would you and would you have the money to buy it perhaps is, as, a, as a joint venture with the likes of Centrica? I toss out the idea for your strategic consideration as a board chairman. Perhaps you'd make some useful comments on this in my earlier points now. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, four questions. I'll try to answer them quite briefly because we're late here. First of all, production is down for two reasons. One is that we're selling assets. The other one is that we've done more turnarounds, which is really maintenance programs, than we would normally do to get, make sure that everything is safe in, in our operations. So we have, have had intentionally more downtime in our assets than normally. And we will see production come down 
because uh, we sell assets. Uh, we have sold, as you say, 10, 10% of the... We are on the way to sell maybe 10% of our assets or so. These are sold because we need to make sure we can finance the accident in the Gulf of Mexico. So out of this comes a somewhat smaller company. We, we need to be realistic about that. Russia is today... Between, between Saudi and Russia is, is the biggest producer of hydrocarbons of oil and gas in the world. Um, with huge resources, and we are the, by far the biggest uh, foreign investor there. We, we, we are five times, I think, bigger than, than someone else there, a uh, foreign investor. Um, as I said, hugely successful. The, the joint venture has been very successful as a joint venture throughout its period. But it is also clear that we, it is a joint venture together with three individuals that, of course, have their own strategies and wishes for the future. So I think it's no, it is no secret that over time, I'm sure that we will find other ways forward in, in, in Russia, but we're well positioned to, to do so. So um, that, that with Russia. When it comes to alternative fuels, as you say, we, we, we have exited solar, but we have focused in the areas where we have strategic advantages. Wind, we have two gigawatts installed. We have the possibility to build 20 gigawatts. Wind is not automatically a core competence when you are in, in hydrocarbons, but we have a very long tradition there. And we are also building several of these wind farms where we, for example, have gas production so that we can sell a combined gas-wind uh, proposition as, as it's not always blowing, and therefore it's important to be able to deliver energy in a safe way. Finally, nuclear is, is a massive technology acquisition if one should go in there. It has little to do with, the, with the, the technology that we have in the company. So it has not been seen as a, as a very logical step for us to take. Uh, I guess, as in any strategic discussion, you should explore all options, but it has not been one of those that have seemed attractive to us. Chairman, so could, we, could I just... Um... I think we, I, we are so late and we have so many questions, right. so I, I would like to go on to A here. Well, good afternoon, uh, Mr. Chairman, fellow shareholders, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, let me introduce myself. I'm Robert Barrett, and I'm an ordinary shareholder. I have um, some inquiries to make, and some of the subjects have been touched slightly before me by other shareholders and also during um, the report that... Uh, you made, and also that um, Chief Executive Bob Dudley made. Um, but I have some, some, I'd like to make some further inquiries. Um, what opportunities do we have for um, putting out this information um, that's already been given here? Um, do we, do, will it match what might be put on the website at all? I'm not sure I understood the question. <laughs> okay. Um, I am concerned about um, being able to match the information that's been uh, given here uh, with what's been put on to the BBC's... Uh, not BBC, BP, this company's website. Are we having a... Um, are we going to match uh, the two together? What we talked about here today on the website. Yeah, Rob, Please, Robert. Mr. Uh, yeah, thanks, Chairman. Uh, Robert, I... I th 
I think you will see most of the information of what we've spoken about on the website. Um, it, is a, it is a pretty big website, and you have to navigate through it. I mean, there's some things that have happened in the last two or three months that, mm-hmm. that are new uh, that, that maybe yet are not laid out like that. But, but I think you will find most of this all on our website. And, and the other uh, place I would look is uh, the investor relations part of the website in particular will lay out the 10-point plan and the activities that we have. Well, that'd be that'd be good. I mean, I know there's some small subjects that um, do concern do concern me, and I expect if it's too much for shareholders here to um, ask, and I know there's a deadline that was mentioned on your um, website about the how long a webcam is going to be running. Um, so I'd like to keep it re- reasonably short, but I hope I may be able to inquire later and further by email. Yes, please. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Uh, greetings, um, Chairman, Board, and shareholders. Uh, it's just a brief one about your approach to sustainability. Um, I'm just wondering how the company does uh, manage to justify the investment in the pre-production, the pre-production investment in dangerous and potentially poisonous and potentially um, illegitimate development of the heavy soil, heavy oils in First Nation lands in northern Canada, and these will potentially incur calamitous environmental impacts locally and climate change globally. And I just want to say that, or ask, in the evening of mankind's fossil fuel age, uh, might not these funds be better spent in the development of more renewable technology, which might carry us uh, into tomorrow's fossil-free age? And, and we have, we set the target 2005 of, of spending $8 billion in investments in renewable within the next 10 years. We have already, uh, after seven years, we spent seven. We spent 1.6 last year, and we continue to increase that. We're spending more on alternative energies than we've ever spent, and we're doing it primarily in wind and, and uh, biofuels. And, and we are of the opinion that, that uh, these alternative, that alternative energies will play a very interesting role in the future. But it's growing from a, lo- from a small base, so it doesn't change dramatically the world. But from a business point of view, alternative energies is growing faster than any other form of energy, and that's a very encouraging. Can we go to C? Okay. Um, I, I have quite a simple question, Mr. Chairman, um, relating to that one. Uh, we, we've already heard that BP's business plan is based uh, upon this continued high fossil fuel use that you're projecting into the future. And yes, you've talked about wind and biofuels, and before we let's not even talk about some of the problems with biofuels, but those things are included already in your prediction. So with everything you're doing now, including those um, so-called alternative fuel sources, um, that you're still expecting an 80% fossil fuel use in 2030, um, which, as you accept, uh, will take us into a terrifying future of global climate chaos and social collapse. Um, so my question is, uh, what's the escape plan? Um, I, I mean, the, the really serious stuff is going to start kicking in within 20 or 30 years. A lot of the people in this room will still be around then. Um, so I can only assume that BP is building uh, some kind of interplanetary escape pod uh, in a secret bunker somewhere uh, to ferry the board and major shareholders and executives away to safety uh, as the planet collapses around us. So um, my question is, I'd, I'd just like to know... Um, 
where this escape pod where is, um, how many spaces there are on it, and uh, where we're planning to go. Are we going to set up a, a colony on Mars or, or possibly the Moon, somewhere deep within the Earth's crust, or perhaps even another solar system? And how much does it cost for uh, us shareholders to book ourselves a ticket on board? Well, thanks for your input. I think the question has been asked in various forms, and we have given the best answers we can. I don't think we should take more time to it, but I understand your concern. So that means that the, the BP isn't going to do anything about this. They're just going to leave us all to be killed by, killed by climate change. <laughs> May I propose we go to D? <laughs> Station D. Robert Muriel, Mr. Chairman, uh, shareholder. Contracts, or rather attacks on BP, seem to come in the newspaper without necessarily having mentioned them today. One is that uh, apparently you're being investigated because an employee took kickbacks um, to place business with an oil tanker chartering business. Is there any strength in that, any purpose in it? And the other one is, of course, in relation to Rosneft, we've mentioned several times, but I've also read, haven't I, that your partners there are trying to sue BP for getting involved with Rosnes. So uh, is there anything in that, please? This is a matter that is, is very serious, uh, serious matters for us whenever we hear things like that. So I'll hand it over to Baum. Uh, yes, sir. Thank you. Um, yeah, there has been reported in the press uh, 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 an investigation of something to do with shipping. We take all matters or allegations of any kind, such as bribery, very, very seriously. Obviously, we're doing our investigation. We're cooperating with investigators. We can't comment on it. Uh, don't actually know whether it's right or not. You okay? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, just to you know, we take all of these kind of matters very, very seriously. Um, and then on, on Russia, uh, there are arbitrations and disputes that have been going on now for a year. Um, we have been winning a series of cases in the Siberian courts. I think, uh, uh, we're, again, anything that's legal and commenting, uh, it's not appropriate to comment on the specifics of the case. Is everything okay over there? All right. Yeah, okay. You can't, you can't tell us what, what your partners are going to do next then in, in relation to this case. No, they're not going to drop it. Uh, I'd, you'd have to ask them what their plans are. <laughs> All right, should we go to station number A? Are we okay over there? They're not dead. A, station A, please. Uh, good afternoon to you all. My name is Sunil Kumar Paul, shareholder. Sir, my, my question is on your speech. I don't know whether you're hearing me or you're looking at the everywhere. Who is speaking now? Um, my question is on your speech. You said, sir, that uh, the legacy of the legacy of the past caused the major crisis. How can you say that? The BP was a solid company, and Gulf of Mexico, Mexico was an operational lapse. And on the basis of that alone, how can you say that the legacy of the past caused that major lapse, and then you began a new chapter. How could you say that? Sir, 
The second question is this, that I think you need a bit of a deterrent in the board. Board is uh, uh, not that diversified. Uh, and I think so far as the women are concerned, and you should follow the recommendation of Lord Davis, that there should be 25% of women in the board so that there is a kind of deterrent so that you people uh, cannot operate the way you operated uh, with regard to the Gulf of Mexico. So another thing, I think I consider both you and Mr. Dudley controversial figures uh, because you were away when the Gulf of Mexico disaster happened. You are not seen anywhere. And now we hear that your one leg is in BP and another leg is in Volvo. And I think that is uh, not on with regard to this BP, uh, with regard to BP. And similarly, Bob Dudley might have done great, great job, but I think he has done several um, uh, mismanagement on the future of this company. And I think... Uh, that, that is why, in my opinion, to, to start fresh, both Bob Dudley and yourself should, 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 should resign and go. And to start a fresh, fresh BP, uh, a fresh BP, so that, so that the kind of uh, legacy you are talking about uh, will not be repeated. Thank you, sir. Please, Paul. Sir, thank you. Um, I do want to be clear. What I said was that we needed to learn the lessons of the past in 2010. Absolutely, this company has a great responsibility to learn the lessons from the accident in the Gulf of Mexico. You would expect that. Our shareholders should expect that. When I spoke about a new chapter in the company, we have responded from a crisis, and $40 billion of shareholder money has moved into responding to an accident. That may not qualify as a new chapter moving forward, but that's the way I described it. I also spoke about the, the realization that the world is going to need 40% more energy by 2030 and shaped the, uh, the role of our company going into the Ford 2030. And I think that that's exactly how BP should think about it. It's a new chapter in the world. The growth of the emerging economies and the BRICS countries of the world are reshaping geopolitics and energy politics uh, globally. And, and I think that the way I described it, I, I made no comment about legacy of the past. I, turn, I spoke about the lessons learned from the accident in the Gulf of Mexico. And I stand by that uh, description. Can I, can I hear the question about my uh, role in Volvo? I, I, I didn't catch that because there was so much noise here. I did say that uh, uh, because there's a lot of uh, publicity that your one leg is in Volvo and another leg is in BP. Is that right or wrong? Well, I, as I said before, um, I think that in these large corporations that we work for, I think you will see non-executive directors going forward actually have fewer assignments 
because they do require more time. These are not full-time uh, assignments. And, and uh, when I work with BP and Volvo, you probably find that I have lesser assignments than any other FTSE chairman has. I will focus on these. But I think where you saw in the past that uh, directors could have five or six or seven, I think you will see lesser of that because the, the job that we're doing requires more time and more, uh, both more concentration and, and, and more time allocation. So I, I agree with you that this is important and that that is where I'm coming from. This is what I'm going to do and nothing else, nothing in addition. Two more questions. We go to B. Jeanette K, shareholder. Mr. Chairman, you mentioned earlier the considerable refreshment of BP's board. But why does that not include the appointment of any women executive directors? And that makes me wonder whether you personally think there will ever be a chairwoman leading the BP board in my or your lifetime. Well, let me, let me just be very clear. Both me and, and I know I speak for the board, we, we and management, uh, any company, any board, any group will, will get stronger and better with more diversity. There is, of course, a, a, uh, in, an, in a very male-dominated industry like ours, it's not always so easy. But that is not a good excuse for a company like BP because we're so big and we can attract talent. Um, so this is important on our agenda. We have said that we are going by 2013, we should be three on the board. By, by 2015, we, we, we support the target to, at 25%. We, because we have had so much renewal, we're not sure how fast we can get there. But this is a task for the board, for its nominations committee, and it's a task for Bob Dudley, for his management team. What do you think? Yeah, well, Jeanette, I think it's a great point. We spend a lot of time talking about diversity and inclusion. So it's, it's more than just diversity. And we, we think about diversity as not only uh, women. We think about it as non-UK-US members of the management team, and we think about racial minorities. And we talk about this. Today, we have roughly 20% of the group leadership in the company are women. They're not on the, executive, on the most senior board at this time, but you will see this change in time. What we've realized as an energy company and a heavy industry company is the number of women in the company, almost by definition of our industry, is lower. And, and in order to put a pipeline of really talented women in, we're recruiting now down five and six levels in the company and tracking that because that's what has to move through. Uh, the company. We have some great senior women, and they will undoubtedly move through much faster as well. But it's, uh, there's not a quick fix to it and, it, and it's more than women. It is also uh, racial minorities, and uh, we want to expand the global nature of the management team. So the commitment is there from all of us. Well, thank you for your patience for being here. Now we go to Station A for the last question on resolution number one. Mr. Chairman, my name is Emily Kenway, and I'm here as a proxy. My question is on remuneration. That is the next resolution. So I was told it would be okay to ask it now. No, if you just stand there, because we're, we're stopping the resolution number one, and then we go to remuneration. It'll take 30 seconds to get there. So just be patient. Um, all right. So the votes from, uh, from the shareholders not present will now be shown behind me. And this is resolution number one.
So now we consider resolution number two, the approval of the director's remuneration report. We are around 60, but 63%. Carrying out their fiduciary responsibilities, because we as private shareholders only own a very small part of this great company. Well, this is, this is, a, uh, this is a, a fate we share with with most other companies. I believe the average for UK companies is 65% and we are this year 63. But I agree, and any, any, any way any, we have to stimulate the participation, I think is important. Can we then go to, we are now at resolution number two. Uh, the director, director's remuneration has become a topic which have seen much public comment in recent months. BP works to understand the mood of the society in which we are based. But while we recognize the concerns of government and society, we need to also remember that we are a global company and we compete in a global market for talent. And I believe that our approach to reward directors balances the priorities here of clear financial performance, meeting of our responsibilities as a corporate organization and providing value for our shareholders. It is important that reward is linked to performance and that it is fair when considering the achievement of the executive. So, let's go to station number A here. Thank you. As I said, Emily Kenway, proxy. I'd be grateful if you could confirm whether my understanding of Mr. Dudley's potential performance-based pay is correct. I read the report as saying Mr. Dudley's overall potential performance-based pay to be around 900% of his salary. Can that possibly be the case? And if so, would you not agree that this would make BP an outlier in the FTSE 100 with regard to performance-related pay? Well, it, it's, uh, you, you're, comparing, uh, you're comparing a theoretical outcome with an average of other companies I think the average have been 6% in the past of our payout in the longer term. But I'll hand this over to Anthony Bergmans, who will give a little input here. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for that question. Um, if all the variable pay would pay out 100%, so the annual bonus, but also the long-term bonus, if that would all pay out at its maximum, you could get there. But if you look at the, what has actually happened over the last couple of years, to give you the example of the long-term uh, payment system, that has paid out at less than 10%. So less than 10% of the potential of that uh, payment has been actually realized. So it, it, your point is right if everyone would, everything would score, but it doesn't. And of course, the targets are set in such a way that we actually would have hoped to have been paying out a little bit more than less than 10%, but it's not the expectation that it will pay out every time at 100%. Thank you. I believe we have a question on station B. Is that right? No? All right. No further questions. Then the slide behind me shows the votes received from those not here today. D, is that remuneration? 
Yes. All right. Thank you. Um, Chairman, I, I asked earlier about your professed uh, dedication to shareholder return. The annual report and summary review shows there hasn't been any over the last five years. Your five-year total shareholder return is some 4% negative. And I put to you that this is, among other things, evidence of failure of your remuneration policy, and it may well have something else, uh, it may also have to do with lack of um, not only executive director, but non-executive director vigilance over the company's uh, safety standards and procedures, because clearly your um, cavalier attitude to safety uh, and particularly the Gulf of Mexico have affected the um, company's fortunes. Uh, please, would the remuneration committee chairman, uh, whose report I have read and who can take that as read, um, comment on uh, the financial, the apparent um, insensitivity of what the Financial Times reported on um, 7th of March under the heading BP's Dudley's uh, BP's Dudley triples his earnings. Uh, I put to you that given the parlous state of the company after the Gulf of Mexico, there is insensitivity on paying out bonuses, although I well understand the basis on which you say you have done so. Uh, so my, my point is actually strategic, that... Uh, you arguably should not be paying out these bonuses until shareholders actually benefit from the company's fortunes. Otherwise, you give an impression, do you not, of board snouts in the trough at shareholders' expense. And if you won't uh, cancel these, these bonuses, um, I suggest that the chief executive and executive directors and others could do the decent thing and waive them as uh, Royal Bank of Scotland uh, Stephen Hester chief executive Stephen Hester conspicuously done because um, you're, you're clearly uh, uh, professing um, a commitment to shareholder return and not actually delivering it please would you comment, thank you Thank you. We should remember that last year there were no bonuses as a result of the accident. But, but your point is taken, and I'll hand over to Anthony Bergmans. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll just uh, comment on that, and thank you for the question, Mr. Farmer. Uh, first of all, your introduction point about TSR, total shareholder return, uh, and you said it is a proof that the system is not working. I, I would claim the opposite. The fact that the long-term plan, which is very much uh, predicated on TSR, total shareholder return, has in the fact, uh, in the past, proven to be sensitive to performance. If the performance wasn't there, it didn't pay out. And as I said before, it has paid out less than 10%. This year, for the first time, it is paying out 16%, because in one area, particular area, targets were met and exceeded. So I would say the system if you assume that a fair system is that it can only pay for performance, then I think the system has proven 
to be resilient. Your other point, of course, is that uh, should directors, should people have various pay or bonuses at all? Now, share price is very important, but share price is not the only uh, element we steer the company upon. In the introduction of Mr. Dudley, you have seen that he, he, he emphasized three points, safety, trust, and value. And if you look at page 142 uh, of the annual report, you'll see exactly these three elements coming back when we describe the composition of the annual bonus. And of course, share price is very important and value is very important, so you'll find it back there. But other elements are important as well. For instance, safety and also restoring our reputation. So the final point I'd like to make on this is that, yes, we do agree that your interests are very important. And that's why we have made changes two years ago to the remuneration system to further align the interest of management with the interest of shareholders. So we then introduced, for instance, a, in the annual bonus, a deferral scheme whereby mandatory uh, the uh, executives have to take one-third of their annual bonus uh, and put that in uh, shares and then keep them for three years. And there is also a uh, voluntary arrangement where they can take another one-third of a, 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 a one-third of their annual bonus and put that in shares as well, which then will be matched after three years. Of matching shares, uh, may I respond on the issue of matching shares, um, which seems to be misconceived because I fully understand what you've just said, that um, compulsorily a third of bonuses deferred, the company matches one for one, uh, the, uh, the recipient may also voluntarily defer another third with one-to-one -one matching. All he substantially has to do then is sit around for three years, and um, the matching shares pop up. Meanwhile, the uh, shares could have gone down uh, to the general discomfort of shareholders, but the uh, recipient's uh, interests are safeguarded because his, uh, his legacy is doubled. Now, I suggest you do away with these matching shares because they're a pernicious uh, benefit for a pernicious reward for nothing. Um, and um, furthermore, can I take issue on your notion of uh, basing remu variable remuneration on uh, a peer group? Because all too often, uh, when, for example, the common peer group of the FTSE 100 was showing a negative TSR trend, we had the absurd spectacle of companies paying out variable remuneration for losing less of their shareholders' money than the peer group. Um, now, you are, over five years, which I put to you as a reasonable time scale to consider, uh, you have been losing shareholders' money, full stop. And it irks me and probably other shareholders that you should, however misguided, however, however well-intentionedly, but in my view misguidedly, be safeguarding your fellow board members' remuneration against that backdrop. Well, let me again say that you are right that in the last five years, from a TSR perspective, in comparison to our peer group, we, we have not done well. Hence, as a result, we have not paid out that well on that particular component of the long-term 
incentive plan. On your remarks about uh, matching, two years ago this was introduced uh, into this meeting and shareholders uh, embraced it and we, uh, uh, we, had a, we had an advisory vote on it, as you know. But I would like to make two comments. First of all, on the matching plan. First of all, it is not entirely free. There are conditions attached. After three years, our safety performance and sustained performance must be, uh, must be positive. The second point is, at the time when we introduced it, it wasn't something on top, because we actually reduced uh, the value of the longer-term component. For instance, we reduced the, um, the amount of shares, which uh, performance shares, which are then uh, uh, given. So it wasn't a sort of top-up. It went instead uh, at the expense, so to say, of the longer-term uh, incentive. All right. Thank you so much. And then we go to C here. I think it's Mr. Well, Buckelmann. My name is Kurt Buckelmann again from Austria. I propose as a shareholder that Mr. Dudley should have double of the amount, but he has about five million now. I would say at least 10 million would be the right, the right thing to do if you compare him with the Novartis, Hoffman, Laroche, and all these kind of people, the CEOs of these countries. Uh, these companies, I think he should be equal to such companies. And in my opinion, BP is uh, such an important player with such a big responsibility that this should be changed. Thank you. I think Mr. Dudley will get very inspired by that comment. We have now Station A. A very short point, sir. By comparing our performance with our peer groups, we're really saying that Total has got a disaster in the North Sea, Chevron has got a disaster in Brazil, that our bonuses will do well because the others have had disasters. That strikes me as absurd. Uh, their performance bonuses will be boosted because we've had a disaster. I mean, it, it's just rather silly, isn't it, when you think about it? So, if you are going to compare performances with your peers, I suggest it should be the ongoing, underlying performance rather than the, the net result. Well, that's a, that, is a very, that is a very good comment, and it's, it's always difficult with variable pay. We should remember that variable pay is basically the way for the company to make sure that you don't pay when you compete for talent in a global market. And there is, there is a salary level, a compensation level for an individual that you say, I'm not going to pay you that regardless of what you do. You're going to have a fixed salary. You will have variable depending on, on, on how you perform. And you can measure that in, in absolute terms or versus competitors. And there are pros and cons with all of that. But I'll, I'll thank you for your comments. Are there, is there anything more, or can we now move on? All right. Now we continue to look at our slide of the poll. Um, and, and then we move on to the election and re-election of directors. As I said, Bill Castell is not here today. He's not offering himself for re-election. All other directors on the board offer themselves for annual re-election, with Anne Dowling, Brian Gilvari, and Andrew Shilston offering themselves for election. So resolutions 3 to 16 before us concern all directors other than me. 
I will share, share this resolution. Anthony Bergmans will share the discussion of resolution 17, which is my re-election. In the notice of the meeting, there are detailed biographies of each of the directors. Contributions made by individual directors have also been considered, and they're described in the notice. All of the non-executive directors who are the subject of these resolutions are considered by the board to be independent. The board performance in our annual report sets out in detail the work of the board and the committees during the year. I've commented in my earlier remarks on this, and I would again like to thank all my comments for their commitment during the year. So with the directors being described in the notice before you, I'm happy to take questions on the reappointment of any of the individuals other than me. So any questions? B. Yes, my name is Adrian Mahnke, a shareholder, and um, I have a question to Mr. Dudley for Resolution 3. Um, are you sure that there really is no way for BP to um, swap shares or drill a loan in Russia? Are you really sure that you checked everything that's possible? Well, I believe that is a question that is no longer on this one. This is about the election of, of uh, directors. I think we stick to that. Any other questions? Uh, then I thank you for your comments. <laughs> the slides being shown behind me shows the, the uh, votes on the resolution 3 to 16 uh, from those that are not here today. I will now ask Mr. Bergmans to share the resolution 17. Yes, in the absence of the senior director, Bill Castell, and as the longest-serving non-executive director on the board, I am pleased to put the next resolution to the meeting, namely the re-election of Karl-Henrik Swanberg as a director. Are there any questions on the resolution? No. In that case, I will refer to the results of the poll, which are on the screen behind us. Thank you. Carl Hendrik, I return the chairmanship to you. Thank you, Anthony. You did that well. Uh, now we come to Resolution 18, the reappointment of Ernst & Young as auditors of the company until the conclusion of the next meeting. Any questions? All right. Slide behind me shows the votes. We will now go to Resolution 19. This is approval for repurchase of the company's shares up to limit described in the notice. Any questions on this resolution? Thank you. Now we turn to 2021. The full text of each of these resolutions are contained in a notice of the meeting. The resolutions give the directors authority to allot shares in two specific circumstances and subject to limits which met the, meet the guidelines of UK institutional investors. Any questions? Thank you. You can see behind me the votes. Now we turn to 22. This resolution seeks approval for the company to call a general meeting other than the annual general meeting with a notice of 14 days. This is intended to enable the company to continue to enjoy the shorter notice period for calling such general meetings as permitted by the company's act, which has been implemented by the EU Shareholder Rights Directive. No comments there, and you see the votes. So... Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our discussion for today. I explained earlier that our company's article of association provide the vote by poll. And I will now ask the company's secretary to explain the voting process to you. Please, David. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Chairman. You will have received your voting card at registration. Only members, their proxies or corporate representatives and ADS 
holders are entitled to vote. Please cast your votes by now completing the following parts of your voting cards. Mark either the box for or against each resolution. Please note that a vote withheld is not a vote under English law and will not be counted in the calculation of the proportion of votes for and against a resolution. Please fill in your name. Please sign the card and indicate whether you are a shareholder, proxy or corporate representative. Your card will be collected by Equinity, our registrar, on your way out of the auditorium. If you need help with completing your card, the registrar's staff will be happy to help you. The poll will close in half an hour from now. We have appointed Equinity to tabulate the polls and have asked PricewaterhouseCoopers to act as scrutineer. As soon as we have the final count, we will announce the results on the BP website. Thank you. Thank you, David. And finally, I want to thank you for your attendance, and I want to thank you for your patience while, asking, while waiting to ask questions at this annual general meeting. We have now refreshments outside. Your lounge vouchers is at the bottom of your poll card. If there is not enough room outside the room, you'll please come in here, but I'm sure there is room enough out there. So, Bob and I, we, uh, together with uh, all of our board, we, um, we will be walking around and, and, and talking to anybody out there, that, anybody of you that wants to speak to us. Thanks a lot for your continued interest and support. Thank you. Have a safe journey.